2: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk.
1: Sorry, I'm late.
0: Anyway... As Bill and I were discussing, I've decided to take death penalty off the table. Gil,
1: we can't do that. What he did was unspeakable. It's special circumstances. Marsha. We want death-qualified jurors. They're more aggressive, more likely to convict. We have to be
0: realistic. People love O.J.
1: They're not going to love him once they see those crime scene photos. I
0: have no doubt you're going to put him behind bars, but nobody in America is going to vote to execute O.J. Simpson. Marsha, we can't even execute Charlie Manson. Great. Now, how about some good news? Donald Vinson has offered his services to the case for free. Wow. Vincent!
1: Oh, come on. We don't need his help.
0: Marsha, Don's amazing. He practically invented jury research. It's
1: not rocket science. We're going to have a downtown jury, which means heavily black. If I can make it black women, we are in good shape. Why is that? They'll sympathize with Nicole. I have handled case after case of battered African-American women. I have heard their stories. They'll be able to make the connection. OJ's abuse led to murder.
0: Okay, well, you're probably right. But it doesn't hurt to be open to outside input. Go see Vincent.
3: So, how about that Bronco chase, huh?
4: (laughs) Anybody see that? I know I did. (laughs) That was something. Okay. So who thinks he's innocent? Okay. And who thinks O.J.
1: Simpson committed the murders? Okay. Holy
0: shit, it's worse than I thought.
1: today that you left the restaurant at 9 p.m. and that you knew that because the restaurant was closing. Why did you tell police you were home by 8.30? Your Honor, I would like to ask the court to instruct the witness to answer the question.
3: Give me your impressions of Marsha
4: Clark based on what
1: you've seen. Please. Come on. And I
4: want you to be
5: honest. Okay. Well, she seems like a bitch. <laughs> she acts yes. like
6: everybody's stupid. And she's strided. I wouldn't want to be her boyfriend. A real know-it-all. She's shifty. <laughs> yes, uh,
4: definitely. I uh, no, really hey. like a What is that about? Black women don't like you.
1: What? No. No, that's idiotic. I have tried many, many cases in front of black women, and one, I have a rapport with them.
0: The data doesn't bear that out.
1: Well, then your data is horseshit. Some of those black women still write me letters.
4: Well, that's wonderful anecdotal information. But I think it would be wise to limit the number of African-American women on your jury. You might also consider softening your appearance. skirts instead of business suits. Perhaps a new hairdo. Maybe try smiling a bit more.
3: Our focus group rated the participants on a scale of 1 to 10 based on how much sympathy they felt. Among black women, O.J. received all 9s and 10s. But
1: Nicole scored 7s, 5s, and a 3.
5: Really? The murder victim scored a 3. It was all over the cards. You saw the cards? Why didn't I see the cards? Who's in charge of distributing the cards? Gentlemen, let's focus on our client. Yeah, that's a novel idea.
0: Now, I will admit, I'm surprised that black ladies liked O.J. so much. What exactly did they say?
3: Oh, it's very positive. They call O.J. handsome, masculine, and charming.
5: Hmm. What, What words did they use to describe Nicole?
3: Um, various terms got thrown around, but one term came up a lot.
1: Gold digger.
5: Gold digger. That's completely wrong. I mean she wasn't like that at all.
1: I'm just repeating the data. Nicole wasn't
5: a gold digger. I mean I, I knew her. She loved him.
0: Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy, the last day of 2020 so I have been told good riddance December 31st Thursday man oh man the year of the Rona pack it up and toss it in the trash can maybe we'll talk about it 10 years from now once we have all recovered and moved on we can try and think back on what we learned and how this helped us move closer to solving white supremacy Replacing white supremacy with justice, but it has not been pleasant, at least for most of us. Certainly not Gus T. The book club, one thing that has been a little bit enjoyable, learning about OJ Simpson in the year of the Rona, we are reading Zoom bomber number one of 2020. Many folks had disgraceful years. Jeffrey Tubin, right there, uh, his best selling book, The Run of His Life, The People verse O.J. Simpson. We are picking up in chapter 9. We got a little bit in uh, so there's a slight break and then it picks up Cochran's public relations triumph in the Dead Wilder case. That's where we'll pick up at the audio segment that we heard at the beginning. That is from the FX series, The Run of His Life, which is based on this book. And Tubin is a consultant uh, for that 2016 project. Uh, we heard a snippet from the fourth episode in the series, which is titled 100% Not Guilty. O.J.'s plea in the not guilty plea in the case. Uh, So they start the segment off uh, with uh, you hear District Attorney Gil Garcetti, Marsha Clark, Bill Hodgman. They're discussing that there is not going to be death penalty uh, for O.J. Simpson. No way they'll get a death penalty conviction. That's important for reasons that you heard. They pivot from that discussion to uh, we have free jury consultant. So we can go and get information about the type of jury that we want to select. You hear Marsha Clark say, hey, we don't need all that. Forget all that. It's going to be a lot of black people. I can connect to black females if we can get them, get them to connect. They know black females know about the toxic black male. They know all about him. I'll be able to. He's feverish. We'll be able to connect and we'll be able to we'll be able to pull this thing off. Okay. so then they pivot. They go to. The jury consultant. Right. And so they're doing the work. How many people think he's guilty? How many think he's innocent? They see the the racial divide right there. You all aren't able to hear that. But visually, you see that all or most of the black people think that he's not guilty. Most of the white people think that he's innocent. So that's important. Uh, And then they start saying, well, what's your feedback about Marsha Clark? There was lots of data on this that people thought she was abrasive. Uh, The B words you heard, all of that was true. In terms of the perception that a lot of people had of her, you pivot and hear the defense team, they had the exact same, not the same person, but in terms of jury consultant information available. Uh, and you heard that it seemed black females did not think, ooh, toxic black male. They thought, oh, wow, masculine, OJ, wow, entrepreneur, all of that stuff. So, very interesting uh, how all of this plays out in terms of what the jury ended up looking like. The jury. Wow. Pay close attention to the way that Mr. Tubin describes this here jury of mostly black people, mostly black females. We will get started. The run of his life. The people versus O.J. Simpson. Audio segment number one. The Cows.
7: Cochran's public relations triumph in the Deadweiler case contributed to a feeling of invincibility on his part, and this attitude extended to his personal life. In 1967, Cochran began living an extraordinary double life, one that required, among other things, astonishing bravado. Over the course of that year, Barbara Cochran began to suspect that her husband was having an affair. Night after night, he worked late and he took what she regarded as suspicious trips on weekends. Barbara hired a private detective who reported that Johnny was in fact spending those evenings at the home of Patty Sikora, a blonde legal secretary. When Barbara confronted Johnny, she later wrote in a book, he turned violent, and he beat her on several occasions. Pounding his hands on her head above the hairline, Cochrane yelled, I'm going to hit you where there won't be any bruises. Cochrane has denied hitting Barbara. Not long after these incidents, Barbara threw him out of the house they shared with their young daughter. Cochrane, however, vowed to mend his ways, and Barbara took him back after a brief separation. The beating stopped, but Cochrane kept seeing Patty Sikora. "'telling her that he was in the midst "'of a drawn-out divorce battle with Barbara. "'Patty believed him, and their relationship continued. "'Awaiting the formal end of Johnny's marriage to Barbara, "'Patty went so far as to change her legal name to Cochran. "'Indeed, while he was still living with Barbara, Cochrane entered into a quasi-marriage with Patty. "'They traveled together, bought property together, "'and had their own group of friends.' As Barbara pieced it together years later, with Patty's help, Johnny would stop over at Patty's after he left the office. He'd read, help April, Patty's daughter from a previous marriage with her homework, or watch TV while Patty made dinner for the family. After April was in bed, they might have some intimate time together. Then John would leave and come home to our house. Barbara simply thought her husband still worked late. Incredibly, Cochran managed to juggle these two lives for ten years. Over the course of this period, Patty had a son with Johnny, and Barbara had another daughter with him. Both women had their suspicions— Patty that no divorce would ever happen, and Barbara that there was another woman. But neither made a final move to put Cochran out of her life. At last, in 1977, Barbara ceased playing the fool, and moved out of the elegant home they had purchased five years earlier in the Tony Los Feliz district of the city. The 1970s had been prosperous years for Cochrane, and he had purchased what he later called, my first rolls, to go with the fancy new house. Facing a potentially expensive divorce settlement, however, Johnny Cochrane decided to make a change. A crusading young liberal named John Vandekamp had been elected the new district attorney that year, and Johnny agreed to join him as the number three prosecutor in the office. As always, Cochrane's motives were mixed. Reducing his income at that moment allowed him to pare down his divorce settlement with Barbara. Also, his having done a stint in a prominent public position would help his law practice when he returned to it. But Cochrane brought unfeigned passion for racial justice to his job as a prosecutor, and he made a special effort to leave a legacy on the issue that mattered most to him. Cochrane had come to focus his practice on the racial abuses of the LAPD. He had no shortage of material. His most prominent case after Deadweiler involved the murder prosecution of former Black Panther, Geronimo Pratt, who was convicted over Cochran's vehement insistence that he was framed. The case became and remains a cause celebre in Black Los Angeles. Later, Cochran joined the DA's office in the middle of the investigation of the police shooting of Yulia Love, a woman whose chief crime seemed to have been the failure to pay her gas bill. As a top prosecutor, Cochran had finally arrived in a position where he could take on the LAPD on nearly equal terms. He and Vandekamp organized what became known as the Rollout Unit, a special cadre of deputy district attorneys who would independently investigate all police shootings in the city. The LAPD despised the rollout unit, and the powerful police union went so far as to picket a Vandecamp fundraising event in protest. Yet the unit still seems to have had an impact in reducing the unjustified use of force. The rollout unit also demonstrated the small-world nature of the Los Angeles legal world. Cochrane's subordinate, who ran the unit on a day-to-day basis, was Deputy District Attorney Gil Garcetti. Ironically, as district attorney in 1995, Garcetti reluctantly disbanded the unit because, among other reasons, the Simpson trial was draining so many of his office's resources. The three-year tour in the district attorney's office only added to Cochran's professional luster. By the 1980s, Cochran discovered that there was big business in the LAPD's misdeeds, and his office became a regular port of call for victims of excessive police force. In little more than a decade of filing civil suits based on these incidents, Cochrane amassed more than $40 million in damages against the city. Which meant that according to legal industry custom, Cochrane netted about $15 million in fees from those cases alone. Thanks to his friendship with his fraternity brother, and later Mayor of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, Cochran took his place at the head of a growing black establishment in the city. Bradley named him to the Board of Airport Commissioners, which runs the Los Angeles International Airport, and that in turn fed a growing corporate law practice for the dozen or so lawyers in the firm, known as the Law Offices of Johnny L. Cochran, Jr., His personal life also settled down during this period. He separated from Patricia shortly after his divorce from Barbara and entered into a happy marriage with his current wife, marketing consultant Dale Cochran, in 1985. All of Hattie's children thrived. Johnny's sister, Pearl became a high-ranking administrator in the L.A. school system, and her husband ultimately reached the post of the deputy chief of the L.A. Sheriff's Department. Martha became a real estate broker and married an accountant. A much younger brother, Rolanzo, born in 1955, has prospered somewhat less and works as a trainer for a long-distance telephone company. Even though Cochrane had official duties on behalf of Tom Bradley's government— That did not stop him from milking the city's coffers on behalf of his clients. The lawyers in his firm, all members of minority groups, worked with great zeal to exploit the city's racial climate for profit. In the aftermath of the 1992 riots in Los Angeles, for example, Cochran took on a civil case on behalf of Reginald Denny a white truck driver who was removed from his vehicle in south-central Los Angeles and beaten by an African-American mob. Cochran's civil suit on behalf of Denny did not seek damages from the black men who had nearly beaten him to death. After all, the assailants were poor, but rather from the city of Los Angeles, whose police officers intervened and saved Denny's life. Cochran's audacious theory posited that the LAPD was engaged in racial discrimination by devoting insufficient forces to the black neighborhood where Denny was injured. The case is still pending. Whatever the case, civil or criminal, prosecution or defense, Cochran worked reliable magic with black jurors, at least in part because he could turn anything into a racial issue. Cochran knew that a black defendant could scarcely go wrong crying racism in the downtown criminal court's building, and he exploited that phenomenon with singular determination and success. It was, for example, a stretch to see the racial dimension in the trial of Todd Bridges, a black child actor who once starred in the situation comedy Different Strokes. The case generated a good deal of media attention in its day, and the District Attorney's Office brought in one of its rising stars to try it. Small world again, Bill Hodgman. The facts of the case were not really in dispute. On February 2, 1988, convicted drug dealer Kenneth Tex Clay, also an African-American, was shot eight times in a South Central L.A. cocaine rock house. At the trial, Clay testified that Bridges a frequent cocaine customer of the drug den, had come to the house with a friend and shot him while he shouted, I told you, Tex, I told you. Three other eyewitnesses corroborated the victim's version of events. Cochran called the 25-year-old Bridges in his own defense. He testified that at the time of the murder, he had been in the midst of a four-day cocaine binge, round the clock, 24 hours a day. He said that he remembered going to Clay's house at the time of the murders. I decided to kick the door in to see if we could scare Tex into leaving. After that, though, Bridges said, he remembered nothing. Asked by Cochran if he recalled shooting Clay, Bridges replied, I don't think I did. I didn't know who did. That's one of the side effects of the drugs. In his summation, Cochran skirted the facts surrounding the murder and instead lashed out at what he called the Los Angeles Entertainment Establishment, which he said had driven Bridges into the grip of his cocaine addiction. Cochran said that Bridges, an actor since the age of six, had been exploited by the White Establishment, which was, by implication, the same establishment that was then conspiring to convict him of this murder. Cochran asked the jury to stand up to these malign forces by acquitting the young man. There were two trials, both before predominantly black jury panels. The first ended in acquittals on the major charges and mistrials on the rest. The second ended in a complete acquittal. Cochran's legend grew. Although he was little known in the broader white world, his reputation was matchless in black Los Angeles, Especially among the Sentinel reading jury serving middle class, he was in fact a long time fixture in publications read by Black Angelinos. On December eighth, nineteen ninety four, for example, a large front page picture in the Sentinel showed Cochran receiving the annual award of the Brotherhood Crusade, a fraternal organization in Los Angeles. Three weeks later, the Sentinel devoted more than a full page, including fifteen photographs, to the ceremony at which Cochrane was honored. The president of the Brotherhood Crusade, Danny J. Bakewell, Sr., was quoted as saying of Cochrane, "'He is, in a time when people reflect upon African-American males in a way that is often condescending and shallow,' an individual who serves as a tireless warrior against those who would deny justice for all. In February 1995, the very week of his opening statement in the Simpson case, Cochrane was honored with a plaque at a Watts Park, Promenade of Prominence Walk of Fame. Taking note of his role in the Simpson case, the article in the L.A. Watts Times said that Cochrane was a leader whose task had been likened to Moses demanding that Pharaoh let God's people go. In the years leading up to the Simpson case, Cochrane expanded his racial appeals on behalf of clients beyond the courtroom. He began using the press as well. When he represented singer Michael Jackson and the child abuse investigation launched by the district attorney's office, Cochran orchestrated a press conference in support of Jackson by a dozen of the top black ministers in Los Angeles. The event was a peculiar one, to say the least. The ministers had never voiced support for Jackson in the past, and the singer, to be sure, had never before been a presence in their lives or churches. But at the widely covered news event, the ministers lashed out at the prosecution frenzy surrounding the case even though Jackson had not been charged with anything and, in fact, never was. Cochrane had requested that his own minister, William Epps of the Second Baptist Church, organize the press conference, and his words there could have been Cochrane's own. "'I would like to think that it's not racially motivated,' Epps told the cameras of the investigation of Jackson. "'It does seem strange, however,' So the Johnny Cochran who came to the Simpson case represented a known quantity in Los Angeles legal circles. Hiring Cochran represented the logical next step in the theory of the defense Shapiro had outlined for his circle of lawyer friends the first week after the murders. Cochran had enjoyed a lifetime of success by using the same theme over and over again, that his clients, even a white man like Reginald Denny, were the victims of official white conspiracies. So it would be with O.J. Simpson. But Cochrane gave this theory immeasurably more force than Shapiro or any other white lawyer ever could. It apparently mattered little that Cochrane would be investing his vast credibility and reputation in service of a lie. He took the case with the goal of conveying a simple syllogism, Cochran stands for the cause of all African Americans. Therefore, Simpson does too. To do this, Cochran started by casting aside his previous, if private, doubts about Simpson's innocence. As Cochran put it in an interview with Katie Couric on the Today Show, shortly after he was hired, In the O.J. Simpson case, I think winning takes on the form of him being found not guilty and getting out. "'because this is one of those cases where, from the very beginning, he said, "'I'm innocent.' "'And you believe him?' Couric asked. "'And I believe him,' Cochran replied. "'I believe him. Absolutely.' "'Couric pursued the issue, asking, "'A hundred percent in your heart that he is not guilty?' "'Cochran was adamant. "'In my heart, I believe that. Absolutely.' Chapter 10. Group Therapy At first, Cochran made a seamless transition onto the defense team. At the arraignment on Friday, July twenty-second, when Simpson said he was absolutely 100% not guilty, Judge Cecil Mills announced that he had assigned the case for trial to Judge Lance A. Ito of the Superior Court. Because Ito's wife, Margaret York, served as a captain in the LAPD, Mills gave the defense the opportunity to have Ito removed from the case with no questions asked. But Cochran and Shapiro agreed that Ito would suit them fine. Ito brought the parties together in his courtroom for the first time the next Monday. The defense team regarded Ito as about as good a choice as they could expect, since jerry brown had left the governorship of california in 1978 the republicans who followed him had named a steady stream of conservative law and order ex-prosecutors to the state's trial and appellate courts ito seemed to reflect this trend after spending virtually his entire professional career as a deputy district attorney in Los Angeles, he had been named to the municipal court bench in 1988 by Governor George Duke Magian and promoted to the Superior Court the following year. But unlike many of his colleagues, Ito had a reputation as a judge who could be reasoned with, one who would at least listen to the arguments of defense lawyers especially these defense lawyers. Cochran and Shapiro knew him well. During his own stint in the DA's office, Cochran had supervised Ido. Shapiro, ever the networker, had also crossed paths with the judge any number of times over the years, when shortly before the murders in Brentwood, the Century City Bar Association named Shapiro Defense Counsel of the Year for 1994. Ito sent him a note calling the award well-deserved and overdue. Shapiro explained to F. Lee Bailey that he had approved the judge because Lance Ito loves me. Ito was also known as an energetic judge, and this was important because speed remained the defense's objective. Both Shapiro and Cochran saw Simpson's popularity as a dwindling asset and they viewed an expeditious trial as imperative. The judge obliged, by scheduling jury selection to begin 60 days hence, on September 20th. By California standards, Ito's schedule amounted to warp speed. In ordinary circumstances, it often took one or two years for a complex murder case to come to trial. But these delays invariably came at the request of defendants who hoped the cases against them would grow stale. In the Simpson trial, by contrast, the defense lawyers believed that additional time would only allow the prosecution to refine its scientific evidence against their increasingly unpopular client. For their part, Clark and Hodgman's strategy never changed much after the preliminary hearing. Using Cato Kalen and Alan Park, they would prove first that Simpson had the time and the opportunity to commit the crimes, establishing through Kalen that Simpson was alone after about 9.40 p.m. on June 12, and showing through Park that the house at Rockingham appeared empty between 10.35 and 10.55 p.m., Before the jury, the prosecutors would add the specter of domestic violence to establish Simpson's motive. The core of their case would always remain the physical evidence tying Simpson to the murder scene and the victims to him. Hairs and fibers, shoe prints, and above all, blood. The prosecutors regarded the defense's rush to trial as an inconvenience. But by both law and custom... Government lawyers almost never seek delays. After charging someone with a serious crime, the theory goes, prosecutors are obligated to put up or shut up. Regardless of when Ito scheduled the trial, Clark and company vowed to be ready. In the summer months before jury selection, the defense, too, did little more than elaborate on the themes it had struck at the preliminary hearing. Of course, the defense lawyers never had any evidence, or hope of finding evidence, that someone other than Simpson had committed the murders. That left them with one option, chipping away at the believability of the government's case. For this, they had several approaches. First, they would attack the government's chronology, its timeline, in an attempt to show that Simpson did not have time to commit the murders. Then they would allege that the LAPD had collected the blood and other physical evidence in a shoddy manner, thus reducing the probative value of the tests on that evidence. And the defense team would allege, as Shapiro did in his interview with me, that at least one police officer had engaged in a conscious effort to frame Simpson for the crimes. These approaches all constituted variations on the principal theme of misfeasance malfeasance, and nonfeasance by the LAPD, and the defense lawyers sought to elaborate on them in their initial appearances before Judge Ito. As would so often be the case in this trial, each side had both legal and public relations agendas in the early weeks in Superior Court. Virtually all of the motions the defense filed over the summer asked Jogito to redress some perceived wrong that had been inflicted on its client by law enforcement. These ranged from renewing the claim that the LAPD had illegally searched Simpson's home shortly after the murders to asserting that the prosecution had improperly failed to share blood samples with defense team scientists As the defense well knew, most of these entreaties were doomed to failure. Republican-appointed judges in California, as well as on the United States Supreme Court, have greatly narrowed the rights of criminal defendants in recent years. And thus, judges scarcely ever suppress evidence. But in the unique circumstances of the Simpson case, the defense could still win in losing these motions. The court hearings over the summer raised a continual drumbeat of accusations against the police, amplified by intense media coverage, for the benefit of prospective jurors in the case. The defense even made a little progress with Edo. Although the judge declined to suppress the fruits of the police search of Simpson's house on Rockingham, Edo exoriated Detective Van Adder in making his ruling. He said that Van Adder's error-filled affidavit, in which he wrote that the substance on Simpson's Bronco was confirmed to be blood and that O.J. had gone to Chicago unexpectedly, was at least reckless. Words that the defense was only too pleased to see widely reported in the news media. The defense lawyers also brought an ample load of cynicism to their early pleas before Judge Ito. Immediately after the arraignment, for example, they filed an emergency motion asking Ito to suspend all prosecution DNA tests on the blood in the case. They said they wanted a portion of all the samples so that defense DNA experts could conduct their own tests on the evidence. The issue raised difficult technical questions about how much blood the various laboratories needed to perform the different DNA tests and Ito was plainly feeling his way as he went along, admitting at one point that he was a political science major who never set foot on the south side of the campus, where the laboratories are, at UCLA. Still, after days of complex hearings over what became known as the split issue, Ito reached a reasonable accommodation for both sides. The prosecution could conduct its tests as scheduled, but to the extent it was possible, the judge ordered that the government reserve 10% of each sample for the defense to do its own DNA experiments. Months later, it became clear that for all its anguished demands for samples of the blood, the defense never did do any of its own refined DNA testing. Raising the split issue was simply another excuse to portray its client as a victim of official misconduct. A mistreated defendant denied access to the evidence in the case. Indeed, from this small episode, one can reasonably conclude that the defense lawyers did not want the blood at the crime scene tested because they knew what the results would be. By summer, both sides had largely set their basic trial strategies. Each side then turned in its own way to the next and most important challenge on the horizon, how to identify and select the jury that would be the most receptive to its case. As ever, Shapiro went for the best person he could find. He hired Joe Elian Demetrius, a jury consultant based near Los Angeles, whose previous clients included the defendants in the McMartin preschool case and the police officers accused of beating Rodney King. As for her work for King's assailants, Shapiro worried about results, not ideological purity. Shapiro asked Demetrius to conduct all the surveys and focus groups she needed to, and then promised to consult her closely when it came time to select the jurors for trial. The prosecutors, in contrast, followed a more torturous route to jury selection, Their efforts in this critical area reflected, in microcosm, the problems that beset them from the start. The consequences of their starchy insistence on high ethical standards, their arrogance, their recurring bad luck, and above all, their inability to surmount the ever-present problem of race. In particular, jury selection showcased Marcia Clark's peculiar mix of virtues and flaws— which in the end combined to render her and her colleagues spectators to the trial unfolding around them. Shortly before jury selection began, the prosecution honorably forfeited one advantage it might have had as the case proceeded. Garcetti's office announced it would not seek the death penalty— Death-qualified jurors, as they are known, that is, jurors who have stated that they are willing at least to consider imposing the death penalty, are well known for being more likely to convict as well. As a defendant without an extensive criminal past, Simpson was an unlikely candidate for the death penalty. But the prosecution did yield an important strategy advantage when it excluded even the possibility. In ordinary circumstances, government lawyers do little to prepare for jury selection in a criminal trial. Prosecutors' offices almost never have the funds to hire jury consultants, so the lawyers generally rely on their experience and gut feelings to do the best they can. All along, Marcia Clark thought a business-as-usual approach would best serve her team. One can see why prosecutors tread on dangerous ground when they make decisions about jurors based on generalizations about their ethnic backgrounds, which is, after all, the reason jury consultants conduct surveys and focus groups. In crude form, such actions by prosecutors are flatly unconstitutional. Since the Batson v. Kentucky case in 1986, The Supreme Court has held that prosecutors may not systematically remove prospective jurors from a criminal case solely because of their race. Batson and some cases that have followed it leave prosecutors considerable leeway on what constitutes racial bias in jury selection, but the subject still gives honorable prosecutors pause. By the summer of 1994, public surveys had already shown profound racial differences and attitudes about the Simpson case. Why, Clark wondered, bring that sort of divisiveness right into the prosecution camp? Besides, Clark had her own ideas about jury selection. While trying many cases in the criminal courts building, she felt she had always developed a special rapport with one group in particular, black women. In case after case, she won their smiles, their nods, their sympathy. After trials, Clark would often speak to jurors, and the ones who always gave her the warmest greetings were the African-American women. She even had a fan club of sorts, a group of former jurors, all black women, who wrote her letters and kept in touch well after their trials had ended. Clark felt that these women her women, would respond to the story she would tell of Nicole Brown Simpson's death. After all, African-American women were disproportionately the victims of domestic violence. They would understand how Simpson's violence had built inexorably to murder. Clark didn't need any outsider to tell her what she felt in her trial lawyer's bones. Yet a consultant did appear, and not just any jury consultant. In 1976, Donald Vinson was a respected, if obscure, marketing professor at the University of Southern California when he received a surprise phone call from lawyers at Cravath, Swain, and Moore. The New York firm was representing IBM in a complex antitrust case, and they wondered if Vinson might apply some of his work in the social sciences to the art of jury selection. Spurred by Cravath, Venson invented a new field. Using the most sophisticated research techniques, including focus groups, survey research, and even the hiring of shadow jurors who would sit in court and give lawyers day-by-day critiques of their efforts, Vinson transformed the way well-heeled trial lawyers prepare for court. He quit USC, founded a company called Litigation Sciences, developed it into the leader in the field, and sold out for many millions of dollars to the Saatchi and Saatchi Advertising Agency in 1987. When his non-compete agreement expired in 1989, Vinson started from scratch and created a new firm, Decision Quest, which he promptly transformed into the new industry leader. By the time of the Simpson trial, Vinson employed 200 people, and had an itch for bigger challenges and a wider stage. Actually, the hankering had started a little earlier. Vinson had been appalled in January 1994, when the first trial of Lyle and Eric Menendez had ended in hung juries. Immodestly, perhaps, Vinson felt this failure of the district attorney's office reflected, at least in part, government prosecutors' lack of access to experts— like himself. Vinson felt that even a temporary escape of such obviously guilty figures as the Menendez brothers brought the whole judicial system into disrepute. He and his friend, John Martel, a prominent civil lawyer in San Francisco, discussed the situation and decided to volunteer their services for the next Menendez trial. In March 1994... The two men met with Gil Garcetti and David Kahn, who would be leading the retrial, and the prosecutors accepted Vinson's offer. After an initial round of focus groups, both Garcetti and Kahn immediately became boosters of Vincent's work, and they touted him to Clark. Vinson was game for another pro bono project, and Clark reluctantly agreed to see what he had to offer. The first test came on July 23, 1994, when Vinson organized a focus group at the Plaza Research Center, an anonymous-looking office building near Los Angeles International Airport. Decision Quest recruited ten jurors for what Vinson called a mock trial. Clark had videotaped a 20-minute version of her opening statement in the trial, and Bill Hodgman, play-acting the part of one of Simpson's lawyers, had taped a statement on behalf of the defense. The plan was to play both tapes for the jurors and listen to their reactions. Skittish about the process, Clark thought the experiment might leak and asked that her tape not be played. Instead, while the mock jury waited, John Martell listened to Clark's tape and then paraphrased it for a camera so the group actually heard Martel for the prosecution and Hodgman for the defense. Clark, Hodgman, and Garcetti watched the mock jurors from behind a pane of one-way glass, and what they heard astonished them. Decision Quest had recruited a diverse panel, five men and five women, six whites and four blacks, and everyone expected some ethnic correlation to the results. But the racial divide, in this test at least, was stark and overwhelming. Whites for conviction, blacks for acquittal. What was more, the partisans on both sides held their views passionately. Following the initial votes, Vincent spoke with the black panel members in an effort to learn what might change their minds about Simpson's guilt. As an experiment, he asked them to change several assumptions about the facts of the case. First, to assume that it was 100% certain the blood to the left of the shoe prints at Bundy was that of O.J. Simpson. Second, that scientific tests on the glove at the crime scene positively identified the skin oils on the inside as Simpson's. This was practically a directed verdict of guilty. No matter three of the four blacks still said they would vote not guilty. There was more. Vincent questioned the black women on the panel closely about the issue of domestic violence. He asked them to assume that Simpson had beaten Nicole and that he had threatened and stalked her. Their reactions were uniform. In every relationship, there's always a little trouble. People get slapped around, that just happens. It doesn't mean he killed her. Clark didn't buy it. Not the process, not the answers, and not Vinson. A doughy man with trim gray hair, a Ph.D. who liked being called doctor, Vinson spoke with a quiet assurance that his words were worth the millions that major corporations and law firms paid for them. Clark found him a condescending snob. Vinson thought little better of Clark regarding her as a narrow-minded civil servant who preferred courthouse bromides to solid information. Neither was entirely wrong about the other, but Clark's failure to separate the message from the messenger would have disastrous consequences for her case. Prodded by Garcetti, who remained a fan of Vincent's, Clark agreed to a more detailed follow-up to the July 23rd focus group. Understanding Clark's fear of leaks and the frenzied atmosphere of Los Angeles, Vinson proposed that they move their next research session out of the city, to a place that was demographically comparable to the site of the trial. Phoenix seemed about right, he said. Vinson would even arrange for a private plane to whisk Hodgman and Clark out of the city, secretly, so they wouldn't have to worry about reporters learning of their trip. The prosecutors passed on the plane, but agreed to go to Phoenix and hear more about how prospective jurors might react to their case. Clark and Hodgman met at the Burbank Airport late on the afternoon of August 18th for the short flight to Phoenix. Vinson and his colleagues flew from a different airport. Rushing to catch the flight, Clark came to an abrupt stop in front of the metal detector. Oh, my God she said. I've got my gun. In light of her high public profile, the detectives on the Simpson case had prevailed upon Clark to start carrying a gun. At the airport, she had forgotten all about it until the last minute. Hodgman ran ahead to the gate to try to hold their flight. Airport security personnel were not amused at her oversight and their representative told Clark she would have to fill out a federal form if she wanted to be allowed to travel by air. People at the airport scurried to find the right paperwork, but no one could find it in time for Clark and Hodgman to catch their flight. They stewed in an airport lounge, and when the official with the form arrived, he was followed by a reporter and a photographer from the National Enquirer. By the time Clark and Hodgman were able to get on another flight and make it to their hotel in the suburb of Peoria, they were frazzled and exhausted, and now beset by a full squadron of journalists demanding to know what business they had in Phoenix. What should we do? They asked themselves. Bag it, Clark said. The press will be all over this thing tomorrow. Let's just go home. John Martell, who got along better with Clark than Venson did, tried to talk to her. Perhaps they could salvage at least part of the project, he suggested. Instead of having the lawyers make presentations to the mock jurors, Venson proposed that they should simply ask the participants questions about what they thought about the case so far. That way there would be nothing to leak. It would just be a survey of the impact of the media on the case. Reluctantly, Clark agreed to listen. The following day's session involved 17 mock jurors, again divided more or less evenly along gender and racial lines. As in the first focus group, the racial division of opinions was nearly absolute, with black women backing the defendant most intensely. Detailed questions revealed even more shocking results, Vinson asked the panel members to rate everyone in the case on a scale of one to ten, based on how much sympathy they felt for them. From the black women, O.J. Simpson received all nines and tens. Nicole Brown Simpson, a murder victim, scored a seven, a five, and a three. Then the questions turned to the mock jurors' impressions of the lawyers. The black participants almost uniformly described Robert Shapiro as smart and clever, while the reactions to Clark were scathing. Shifty, strident, bitch, bitch, bitch. Marcia Clark had to sit in an adjacent conference room and listen, on a closed-circuit video feed, as black women, her jurors, she had thought, described her in these unflattering terms— As if the situation could get any worse, several of these mock jurors spent much of the following week giving interviews on the Today Show, CNN, and a variety of other media outlets, and discoursing at length on how unpersuasive the prosecution's evidence had been. Martel was beside himself, desperate to respond in public that there hadn't even been any presentation of evidence by the prosecution at the focus group. But Garcetti's spokeswoman... Suzanne Childs preferred to say nothing. Thus, the impression persisted that there had been some sort of prosecution failure in Phoenix. With jury selection just a few weeks away, the prosecutors had to take stock. Between the two focus groups and a general telephone survey conducted in Los Angeles by Decision Quest, there certainly had been no ambiguity in the results. African-Americans remained devoted to Simpson's innocence, with black women his strongest supporters. According to the telephone poll, black men were three times more likely than black women to believe that Simpson was guilty. Moreover, black women felt overwhelmingly that even if Simpson had engaged in a pattern of domestic violence against his ex-wife, that didn't make him appreciably more likely to have killed her. According to the telephone poll, a full 40% of black women felt that the use of physical force was appropriate in a marriage, and black women especially could not abide Marcia Clark. Venson asked why. Evaluating the data in social science terms, he came up with what he called a psychosexual reason for the results. He said that African-Americans viewed O.J. Simpson as a symbol of black male virility in a predominantly white world. He was handsome, masculine, likable, and charming. As a consequence, according to Vinson, black women in particular saw Clark as a castrating bitch who was attempting to demean this symbol of black masculinity. Everything about Clark was harsh, her demeanor her clothes, even her rapid-fire speech, which Vincent felt intimidated those of lesser educational backgrounds. Vinson ran his theories by Clark, and the consultant even volunteered some personal advice for the prosecutor. Vinson said that Clark might want to soften up her appearance for the trial. With a new hairstyle, fewer business suits, more dresses. On the eve of jury selection, Marcia Clark sat down and thought it over. The focus groups, the telephone survey, the jargon-filled demographic analyses, and even the fashion hints. Then she made up her mind. Don Vinson could go to hell. She was going with her gut. Lance Edo forgot to turn on his microphone when he took the bench on Monday, September 26, 1994 a small sign that the usually meticulous judge had the jitters on the first day of jury selection. It had been a considerable accomplishment on his part to start jury selection on time, but he, like everyone else in the courtroom, knew that the decisions made now would dwarf all others in importance. Ito had arranged for a huge pool of potential jurors, more than 900, to be brought forward for the Simpson case. The prosecution had asked that the jury in this case be sequestered, a request that had become almost customary in recent years for the highest-profile cases. Sequestration would mean that the jurors and alternates would be almost entirely cut off from the outside world for the duration of the trial. They would live in near isolation, with all but their conjugal contacts monitored for exchanges of information about the case. Not surprisingly, many potential jurors refuse to sit in sequestered juries, especially for trials anticipated to be long. Because Los Angeles County pays jurors a stipend of just $5 a day, only retirees or mid- or low-level employees of large institutions, the kind that continue to pay employees during jury service, were likely to agree to serve. Conventional wisdom among lawyers holds that a sequestered jury is a convicting jury. But this case, as ever, presented unusual complications. Sequestered juries also tend to scare off most people, leaving only those with strong incentives or big agendas to serve. In this case, the most passionate partisans tended to favor the defense, The prosecutors hoped the judge might signal to the potential jurors that for all the hoopla surrounding the Simpson trial, it was, in fact, just another criminal case. But Ito, carried away with the excitement of the moment, did just the opposite when the large group assembled before him. I have never seen a case quite as unusual as this case, the judge said. This is perhaps the most important decision you will make in your own personal life. Ito thought the candidates deserved fair warning of what might be in store for them. As the first group sat before him in the criminal court's building's large jury assembly room, Ito told them that the trial was expected to go through the end of February of 1995. He was off by more than seven months. The 900 potential jurors had filled out brief questionnaires for this first portion of jury selection, called the hardship phase. They provided basic demographic information about themselves and supplied reasons why service in the case would be a hardship to them. This initial group provided a fair approximation of the overall jury pool in the downtown Los Angeles area. They were roughly equal in men and women, 28.1% African-American, 37.9% Caucasian, with the remainder divided among Latinos, Asians, and others. Overall, the downtown jury pool is about 31% African-American and 30% Caucasian. The potential jurors were a fairly well-educated group. Nearly three-quarters of them had some college or were college graduates. The purpose of the hardship phase was to determine which jurors had irreconcilable personal conflicts with jury service and which ones would go on to the next round of inquiries. As it turned out, Ito was a soft touch. Anyone who wanted out, got out. Of the 219 potential jurors who arrived on the first day, Ito excused 90 solely on the base of their questionnaires. Most said that their employers would not pay them during long jury service or that their personal situations made such service impossible. Moving to the next phase, the judge and the lawyers retreated into a small anteroom to question those jurors whose hardship answers were ambiguous. Deidre Robertson, Ito's clerk, drew the first juror number to be questioned. Number 32, she said. Ito smiled, for this had been Simpson's number throughout his football career. I don't know if this is an omen, the judge quipped, and the defendant eagerly nodded his head. The hardship phase of jury selection took only four days, less than anyone had expected. To Ito's surprise, many jurors seemed downright anxious to be jurors on the case. By Thursday, September 29th, the judge had assembled the pool of 304 willing citizens from which the 12 jurors and 12 alternates would be selected. The lawyers on both sides spent the following ten days poring over the prospective jurors' answers to a much more elaborate questionnaire that Edo had given them. He had asked both sides to submit questions to him. And in an ominous harbinger of how he would conduct the trial, the judge basically threw up his hands and let both sides ask pretty much anything they wanted. This laissez-faire approach yielded a monstrosity, an 80-page list of 294 questions to be answered in writing, many of them calling for essay-type responses. The questionnaire began with reasonable-sounding inquiries about prospective jurors' employment and prior jury service, but it quickly descended into an absurd and insulting fishing expedition. Have you ever asked a celebrity for an autograph? Have you ever known anyone who had problems leaving an abusive relationship? What do you think is the main cause of domestic violence? Three lines were provided for an answer. Have you ever dated a person of a different race? How important would you say religion is in your life? Have you or anyone close to you undergone an amniocentesis? Have you ever written a letter to the editor of a newspaper or magazine? Are there any charities or organizations to which you make donations? If not currently a fan, have you in the past ever been a fan of the USC Trojans football team? Does playing sports build an individual's character? As the prosecutors digested the vast collection of answers, they learned one important thing. The hardship process had acted like a vacuum cleaner for educated white and male jurors, all groups that had showed a predisposition in favor of the prosecution. A little less than one-third of the original pool of 900 consisted of African Americans, in the group that remained in the process at the questionnaire stage, their number jumped to about one-half, and three-quarters of the black prospective jurors were female, the most pro-Simpson group of all. The lawyers had their chance to meet the jurors face-to-face on October 12, when individual questioning of prospective jurors, that is, voir dire, began in Judge Ito's courtroom. According to Proposition 115, the Law and Order Voter Initiative passed in 1990, voir dire in criminal trials was supposed to be conducted principally by the judge, not the lawyers. This is the custom in American federal courts, and it not only speeds the process considerably, it also prevents the lawyers from using their questions to advertise the arguments that they will be making during the trial but in another disturbing preview of what was to come. Ito caved in and let the lawyers do the asking and the puffing. Clark, for example, asked many jurors whether the celebrity of the defendant would affect your ability to render a verdict. One theme of the defense lawyers stood out. In question after question, Robert Shapiro and Johnny Cochran made sure that the jurors knew this was a case about race. Now, with regard to other aspects of answers that you gave us, Cochran said to a white candidate on the first day, on the question of whether or not you felt the issue of discrimination against African Americans, you said you felt it was a serious one. Is that correct? Yeah, the man said. All right, Cochran went on. Now, with regard to the whole question of race, interracial marriage, you felt you had no problems with that. Is that correct? And so it went, day after day. Again, to Edo's surprise, many jurors seemed to be auditioning rather than shrinking from the prospect of service on the case. Many seemed to be lying, too. In Vincent's telephone survey, about 60% of the respondents had said they had more or less made up their minds about whether O.J. Simpson was guilty of the two murders. But among those who answered the questionnaires, only 23% said they had. Either the prospective jurors were an unusually impartial group, or, more likely, they were playing coy in order to slip through the process. In jury selection, as in the rest of the case, Simpson's lawyers coordinated their courtroom and public relations strategies. On October 27th, for example, Hodgman sharply questioned an elderly man whose answers demonstrated that he had a lengthy catalog of grievances against the LAPD. Any responsible prosecutor would have used this juror's voix dire to lay the groundwork for a request to have him excused for cause. And that is what Hodgman did, although the process clearly irritated the juror, who said to the even-keeled prosecutor, You were sort of riling me. The defense, however, launched a coordinated media attack on Hodgman. Immediately after the day's session, Cochran ventured from Ito's ninth-floor courtroom up to the media headquarters on the twelfth floor, where he held an impromptu news conference. We're really concerned about the tenor of the questions and the way they go after certain jurors, Cochran said. As if the point could be missed, While Cochran was discoursing upstairs, Shapiro addressed the reporters who were assembled in the courthouse lobby. Of Hodgman's questioning, Shapiro said, "'It implies an insidious effort to try to get black jurors removed for cause because they are black, because they have black heroes, and because O.J. Simpson is one of them. There's no other reason. The lawyers' salvos led the local news that evening,' and they paid off as well in the front-page headline on the next day's Los Angeles Times. Prosecutors targeting black jurors, Simpson Team says. Still, the case was making progress of sorts, as the parties had a chance to question a few jurors each day. Then forward momentum came to an abrupt halt, and the case nearly collapsed altogether, thanks to the literary labors of one diminutive woman
0: context of white supremacy <clears throat> we will pause and come back second audio segment uh so we will pick up <clears throat> they're talking about faye resnick uh that's what we'll pick up at uh we are in chapter 10 group therapy so we'll pick up at the next session section talking about faye resnick uh, folks have commentary suggestions that they would like to share the number to dial 720 716 7300 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720 716 seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, email address until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail dot com. Drop an email if you have thoughts to share on the text. I cannot believe it. The last broadcast of 2020, we can wrap up the year with OJ Simpson. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Let me get to some of the emails, uh, get our first email in uh, from folks who uh, wrote in with comments. Uh, I just... (laughs) Man, oh man, reading more important than watching uh, television. Uh, it has been awesome uh, getting an opportunity to read some of the other uh, material related to all of this. Uh, other books and what have you. Johnny Cochran's book and Marshall Clark's book, Christopher Darden's book. Lots of books. Lots of we will have another white guest on the program next week as well. But <clears throat> anyway, um, the Man. Yeah, I want to give I want to give Marsha Clark a, a shout out just in her book. She has a car tape section where she's talking about this whole them picking the jurors. I'll read a little bit more, but just the egalitarian Marsha Clark, her women talking about black females in her book. Without a doubt, she writes car tape October 1994. So that's in the process of all this trial hasn't even started. I'd like to see us abolish the jury system. Why leave the fate of our nation in the hands of these moon rocks? Moon rocks. What gave me pause, even I mean, even if I was not familiar at all with the uh, phrase moon rocks, which I hadn't, I hadn't heard it before, but I had heard moon crickets before. And I had the same response because I didn't know what that was. Moon Crickets is in Two-Faced Racism. Uh, Leslie Pika Joe Fegan's book. <clears throat> and he talks about how white people will make up different names for black people, racist names. So they won't do the Mark Furman and just, ah, oh, nigga, this nigga, 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 nigga. nigga. Uh-uh. You got to be more refined. So sometimes you say Moon Crickets or Mondays, ways of talking about black people. That's in Two-Faced Racism. Great book. But that... It brought me back moon rocks, moon crickets. Hmm. Maybe I'm just being a, you know, being an old moon rock myself, a ignorant black person. Anyway, uh, one of the folks who wrote in one of our investors Writes, greetings, Gus, chapter nine. Mr. Cochran wants to know one of the enduring fictions of the Simpson case was the notion of the defendant himself as involved in his defense. Press reports persistently portrayed Simpson as virtually a member of his own defense team. Tubin may have been practicing racism, white supremacy in this passage, having some personal experience with trials and litigation. No one is more interested in the defense than the defendant. Yes, OJ, of course, did not understand arcane areas of law. That is the job of his lawyers. The job of the defendant is to encourage his lawyers interject information when he or she can and make suggestions regarding the defense. Being on trial completely consumes an individual, in particular, someone on trial for a capital crime. Number two, the realities of racism most visible in the blue uniforms of the Los Angeles Police Department lingered like the smog an incomprehensible metaphor a man number three young Johnny young Johnny came to be one of about 30 black students out of the 2000 and or so at Los Angeles high school even though he didn't live in the district Johnny Cochran graduated number one in his class in 1955 whoo Number four, Cochran, milking the city's coffers on behalf of his clients, worked with zeal to exploit the city's racial climate for profit, worked reliable magic with black jurors. He could turn anything into a racial issue. Cochrane knew that a black defendant could scarcely go wrong crying racism in the downtown criminal courts building, and he exploited the phenomenon with singular determination and success. It's not that Mr. Cochran was a brilliant trial lawyer. He just used the race card, which is unlike skilled white lawyers. The musings of a suspected racist, old Jeff Toobin. Chapter 10 The defense never did do any of its own refined testing. Defense lawyers did not want the blood at the crime scene tested because they knew what the results would be or they were afraid that the blood evidence had been tampered with by the prosecution's police in order to frame OJ. Number two, Vincent. He said that African-Americans viewed OJ Simpson as a symbol of black male virility in a predominantly white world. Black women in particular saw Clark as a castrating bitch. This reads like a projection from a suspected racist. Number three, the hardship process had acted like a vacuum cleaner for educated and white male jurors. This is true of all juries. It's easy for this group to get out of it. Moreover, lawyers tend not to want the most credentialed people doctors because they tend to dominate deliberations because other jurors are intimidated. Pause there. Faye Resnick. We didn't get to that part yet. We'll pick up there once we get back to the text. Uh, number again 720-716-7300 Be code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate. Question I'll ask you can share your other thoughts as well but question I'll pose was anyone uh, I guess surprised at hearing how positively uh, black females rated OJ Simpson did that surprise anyone or were folks like of course system of white supremacy duh Or well, were they gonna you know think he's a Klansman or something of that nature he's a big star and it's been on television for a long time and you know films like Roots Klansmen. <laughs> naked gun (laughs) like uh yeah of course was anyone surprised with that or is that fitting with their expectations that black females in particular would start even more so than black males staunchly in support oj didn't do it i don't care if you say he smacked nicole around or whatever he didn't do it juice is innocent anyone surprised by that do you have thoughts on that or other components? Uh, first few folks dialed in with a hand up as we get ready to wrap up a abysmal 2020. Uh, folks with hands up, proceed. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Greetings. All right. Greetings, Gus,
4: and Greetings to uh, all the callers. Um, I will reiterate this once again. I am glad I'm reading this now compared to when it came out in
2: 1996.
4: Uh, I don't suspect Jeff Toobin to be a racist. He is a racist and is practicing racism in his book. And he's being very, very deceptive in regards to his wording and in regards to reporting on the case. So his image of Cochran, you know, uh, being a wife beater, um, you know, talking about his uh, his uh, wife's claims, uh, Barbara's, uh, his ex-wife's claims of of hitting her upside the head and, you know, claiming to, you know, beat her and everything. Uh, but he never says that Cochran was charged with assault. Um, so, you know, whereas, you know, it was just basically a claim by his wife in a book that was actually written in 1995 uh, in regards to it. And one of the good reasons why reading this now compared to 1995, you know, you can look up some of the stuff uh, on the internet. The, the internet was out back then, but it is not, was, you know, it wasn't easily accessible and it probably didn't have as much information now as it, you know, as it does back then. But, uh, the daughter of Cochrane and Barbara Tiffany, uh, in a, uh, article in People magazine in 1995, uh, said that she was shocked about the claims of, you know, Barbara saying that, you know, Cochran was a, you know, abusive and, and mean person. And and she claimed that she never saw, you know, her father, you know, do that to, to her mother. So, you know, that's, you know, like I said, deception. Um, when he was talking about uh, Cochran and the Todd Bridges case, you know, one of the things that he failed to uh, also reveal in that case was that there were witnesses that said Todd Bridges had left the scene uh after the shooting had started, so that was the reason why he was acquitted uh uh of that you know of that crime, so you know he he left that out um and he was talking about how Cochrane when he joined the defense team uh said that it was in the service of a lie <laughs> you know. Um, he also made, uh, Edo, uh, judge Lance Edo as part of being a, you know, uh, uh, conspiracy by the Shapiro team due to his, uh, association with them in the past. So, uh, he points out Ito as somebody who is very suspect in regards to being a judge because of his past dealings with Shapiro and Cochran and, you know, whoever, um, the story in regards to Vincent, uh, the the jury consultant, um, he starts off by you know still going on that old trope about you know spousal abuse as, as the motive and and uh, the reason why OJ uh, supposedly you know killed uh, Nicole. And you know it's it's so interesting that you know going with the with the black women uh who he says that on the survey said that you know just because he abused Nicole that doesn't mean he murdered him but you know what what was also interesting was uh, uh the Robert Blake case, another uh suspected white uh racist actor uh also was acquitted of killing uh his wife, and there was no uh, there was no argument about spousal abuse. And what was uh, also interesting was, you know, um, there was no big outrage about, you know, him, you know, being still being a, a murderous wife killer, even though, you know, he was acquitted. So but O.J. gets all of the uh, the blame for uh, killing uh, Nicole. Um, I, I, I thought that the women in regards to your question, um, I'm kind of surprised about the responses in regards to you know uh uh calling Marsha clark a bitch and and uh also uh also uh thinking that you know it's the juice and he's a you know he's a, a black national hero whatever you know i think those responses was kind of doctored uh but i do feel one of the responses that they did say, and I I don't think he pointed out in the book, but I think it was pointed out in the recording that you played before, uh, in the beginning was about Nicole Brown Simpson being a gold digger. Now I can't believe that, that, you know, she was, she was a gold digger. If you, if you ask me, that's just my opinion. But I think a lot of the black women who probably took the survey probably thought the same thing as well. And, um, Who've been playing down of the jury selection questioning? Like, why is it not relevant to know how you feel about you know spousal abuse? If that was the if that was the argument that the prosecution was making, you know, uh, why was it irrelevant to ask if you were you know a USC fan or something like that? You know, wouldn't that be relevant in a in a case as well or your decision making? So I didn't understand why he was playing down on that. Uh, you know, so that that's you know, I I just I didn't understand that, but this this book, yeah, you know, he's he's very deceptive in this book. So, like I said, I'm glad I'm reading it now compared to '96. Uh, I'll meet my line.
0: Wow, much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Um, I think Thomas in New York, some other folks made that point that when this trial took place and when this book was published in 96, the Internet it, at that time was not what it is now. Uh, like you cannot not just be willy nilly on your phone to double check all this information and not at all. <laughs> like uh, even to download this book, you might have to have a week and hope nobody calls the house like Totally different times way back when. Uh, Just because I did I did my research right. We have another white man coming on the program next week. F.B. Bailey was with us last week doing our immersion in O.J. Simpson. Listener hooked me up. I got Johnny Cochran's uh, other book Journey to Justice from my wish list. I'm just going to give us a little snippet of this same spot, the jury selection, so we can hear what Johnny Cochran has to say about all this. And then I'll hush. And continue to get the caller so this is Johnny Cochran page 259 he writes on Tuesday September 26 we began choosing the 12 ordinary people who would decide OJ Simpson's fate with a capacity of 250 the room where potential jurors assemble is the largest in the criminal courts building at precisely one thirty p.m. we entered in procession a bailiff in the lead followed by Judge Ito in his robes OJ Shapiro and me and then Marsha Clark and Bill Hodgman Ito mounted that the dais at the front of the room and began his remarks by saying, This is the case of the people of California versus Oriental James Simpson. Will you please stand, Mr. Simpson? As OJ rose, a collective gasp escaped from many of those 250 throats. Ito then introduced each of the lawyers and gave a brief but eloquent talk on the constitutional responsibilities of jurors. He explained that they would be given our questionnaire, which they were to fill out completely before leaving that day. He also estimated that Simpson's trial would last for four months. Ha ha ha. A year later, I would wonder in passing whether any of the remaining panelists ever even remembered Ito's hopeful prediction. Based on the polling and focus group data, Joe Ellen and I had an ideal juror in mind, preferably a woman in her 30s or 40s with some personal or familial experience with law enforcement. Such familiarity usually breeds not contempt but realism. We wanted jurors who were able to bring to bear that element of real world experience as they weighed the credibility of the testifying officers against that of OJ Simpson, who we then expected would take the stand on his own behalf. To our way of thinking, African American women who met these criteria would be the ideal jurors, but women of any ethnicity or race would probably would be preferable to men. After carefully reviewing all the questionnaires, we assigned each of the prospective jurors a numerical rating. The most desirable panelists got a 1, the least acceptable of 5. With that behind us, we began the actual questioning of our candidates in the process called voir dire. Downtown L.A. is my home court. I have picked hundreds of criminal and civil juries from its pool. Questioning them is, for me, a relaxed, almost conversational exercise. These are the people of all races and backgrounds with whom I grew up and alongside whom I have worked all my life. We speak to each other with understanding. Prosecutors who lack that background and traditionally harbor an ideological suspicion of minority jurors lack that sense of comfort. And in this instance, it showed. In his questioning of one elderly black man, Watson Calhoun, Hodgman stumbled so insensitively through his voir dire that the old gentleman snapped, You're riling me up. This reminds me of when I lived in the South. Did we get that other sentence, in Tubin? I have to go back and double. I feel like we got the. You're riling me up. I don't. I have to make sure we got the. This reminds me in the South. Far continuing, Bill retracted in confusion, and Mr. Calhoun ultimately was seated as an alternate juror. Prosecutors, particularly in Los Angeles also have been slow to adopt the scientific analytic principles joe ellen employs in the simpson case for example they had been offered free the services of donald vinson president of decision quest one of the country's top jury consultants vinson's pre-trial polling had yielded virtually the same results joe ellen's had he too believed that the ideal defense juror would be a moderately middle-aged woman, preferably black, with some contact with law enforcement. The prosecutors, however, ignored his findings in part because Marcia Clark believed African-American women give particular weight to evidence of prior spousal abuse. In fact, the available scientific evidence suggests the contrary, but Marcia was confident of her instincts. That is like double whammy confirmation. When Vordier began, she and Hodgman tried to hide their advisor in the back of the room. We introduced Joe Ellen to the panel as a member of our team and then informed the prospective jurors that the DA, too, had such an expert, but that he was in the back of the courtroom in their midst. That afternoon, Vincent, who basically had donated to the state a critical service for which our client paid dearly, disappeared from the courtroom, never to return. Now, every trial attorney has his or her personal quirks when it comes to picking juries. I, for example, excuse any man who shows up wearing either white socks or a string tie. It's not rational, but that's just the way I feel. But from the very first day, it was clear to us that Bill and Marcia were particularly at sea when it came to questioning black panelists. It was as if they were speaking across some great divide. In fact, as the process continued, they sought help from one of their African-American law clerks, David Wooden. He's an intelligent young man, now a promising lawyer, but there was something both revealing... And chilling about their reliance on someone with so little experience when so much was at stake. I pursue jury selection with relentless intensity. The U.S. and California Supreme Courts, for example, have both ruled that prosecutors may not exercise their peremptory that is, unexplained challenges to jurors based solely on the prospective panelists race so as bill and marcia used their first 10 or so preemptories to excuse eight or nine black panelists i was on my feet in protest over every one the perception grew that oj simpson might be denied a jury that reflected a cross-section of our community Shortly thereafter, we heard that Garcetti, who was monitoring the whole process, had sent down instructions for his deputies to ease up. Gill continued to micromanage the case from the jury selection to final argument. When they made a half-hearted attempt to claim we were excusing Caucasian panelists without cause... We were able to use our detailed questionnaires to demonstrate that the excused candidate had revealed actual bias, as was the case of one man who said he believed DNA testing always was 100% accurate. And I will stop there. Johnny L. Cochran Jr. with Tim Rutten. Journey to Justice. Reading more important than watching television. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up will proceed.
5: Hello, can I be heard?
0: Yes, ma'am.
5: Yes. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Hope you're having the best evening to have. Um, In regards to the black women, I can't believe that. I mean, he was he's not ugly. Um, He was in the Hertz commercials all around and I guess up until I didn't know that much about him really into the murder and you just think, Oh, you know, okay, whatever. Um, I wasn't in love with him. I was a kid. But you know, he my ugly. Um, but I can definitely believe the stuff about Nicole. I didn't like her. I don't know her. She I thought she was a gold girl, I thought she was a co core. Um, thought she stole a black man, a wife. She stole um a black wife's husband. because he was of course you know, they both decided to be together, whatever. But no, they didn't like anything about her. Um, And that's how, I don't know if it was the media or whatever, but she just came across as, you know, I mean, I'm sorry she died. Well, I guess I'm sorry she died. Um, And then Marsha Clark, I had heard that before because I watched, I think the OJ Made in America by the Ezra, who is the product of a tragic arrangement. So I watched that one and something else, and she kept going, oh, African American women love me. I was like, which ones? I don't know. which I guess you know the one she was in trial with, whatever. Um, but she didn't listen. She thought she knew everything. My I, and then she would call them my African American women like pets or something like that. I didn't know that till I watched one of those documentaries. Well, that I think that was supposed to be like a Docu series or whatever. Um, I never watched that OJ thing, the one with based, that the book is based on, because whatever. Um, but I just love how in general when Black people use the tools that they need, they're always opportunistic. It's always negative when white people. Say, oh, it's so creative, so challenging. Oh, they found a new strategy. It's. I mean, that's I think this is classic all the time, how to say Johnny Coppola wasn't brilliant. He used the resources that were available to him. That's brilliant whether you are a lawyer or just a regular person who hasn't had all that advanced degrees. If you're able to use your resources wisely, I think that's good. I think that's a smart person. And that's all I have for now. Thank you.
0: Much obliged, much obliged. So we got two who, oh, yeah, I could see Nicole as a gold digger. And two people also not surprised uh, that black females were right on. Yes, I think OJ Simpson didn't do this. And no, I'm not going to rush to to judge him. I had a moment while our female caller was sharing Jeff Tubin, He included the quote. You are sort of riling me, but he left out. This feels like the South. See, that's what I mean, like old sneaky Jeff Tubin. <laughs> oh, if you got all that in the transcript, like one more sentence, like you—that's too much. That's gonna break the typewriter. That's gonna break the word processor, old Jeff Tubin. Old Jeff. <laughs> Johnny Cochran. Thank you for giving us the other sentence, sir. Other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up—if we have not heard from you—if you have commentary to share, proceed.
3: Can I be heard? Uh,
0: Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir.
3: Yes. uh, Just as I keep reminding everyone, uh, O.J. Simpson was one of the most popular non-white black males in America for uh, somewhere around 10 to 15 years. Uh, He was selected based on his athletic career and he was popular during that time as a quote-unquote professional football player and college football player uh and was selected to move on into advertisement uh which puts you on tv almost every day which is still was rare in the 70s uh and uh also, he did bit parts in movies and whatnot. wasn't really significant unless he pulled off his shirt. Uh, as uh, was mentioned uh, to females, he was considered to be handsome. And uh, what was that other word, that other complimentary uh, thing they said about him? Uh, charming, yes. And he was. He was. He, he actually was. I mean, I, I, I mean, for what I think would be uh, attractive to a female, uh, specifically. And, uh, also, uh, I am not surprised that, that, uh, uh, what was, what was the, what was the exact question? I don't want to get it wrong. What was the question you asked?
0: Uh, surprise about black females being so supportive of OJ Simpson, or is that what people expected?
3: Oh yeah. I mean, I'm I'm definitely not surprised about, uh, black females in that way. Uh, uh, and I still think today the majority of black females are, are pissed off with the idea of, of, uh, white females, uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, pursuing, uh, and, uh, quote unquote, capturing black males. I, I think the majority of black females uh, have that, have that, uh, 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 particular type of, uh, insight, uh, still today. Uh, and also, uh, the issues, that the decades long issues with the Los Angeles, the, peace, the police department, uh, we can't, we can't leave the, uh, the white male that other white, the, the white attorneys, uh, basically showcased. Uh, we can't leave him off uh, uh, Mark Furman uh, as the representative uh, and uh, it was the trial wasn't that far away from the the LA rebellion that took place and even before that but like I said the long history we talking about decades and all of that was just fuel uh, that was orchestrated by O.J.'s defense uh, uh, team uh, to uh, I mean, it was it was like huge against what was what was, he was being uh, attempted to, to uh, uh, go to prison for uh, on the behalf of the white woman uh, that uh, was, was stating about uh, what she thought black women would 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 be. Uh, uh in that particular type of situation you know i mean uh no uh, black females uh always look at uh I, I would say a majority of them look at uh, white women uh in a, in a suspicious uh uh way uh as far as from my personal observations uh it was something else something else um um yeah and and like i said all of the all of the uh the uh hostility and and, uh that was still uh pretty uh pretty much prevalent uh with the la rebellions and relationship with uh lapd with black people all of that was fueled to uh for oj simpson to uh walk out innocent and yes uh, uh, uh white females in that case are Considered to be the uh, the uh, identif- identification of a uh, what's that term called again? Uh, uh, gold digger. Yeah, they don't they don't they don't really do really need a black male for anything at all. <laughs> Tell tr- other than maybe a a two legged a, a, a two legged dog or something, you know, as far as got total control over a person, you know, uh, they don't have any use for a black male. You know, so, uh, yeah, gold digger. That's it. Thank you.
0: Much obliged, retired firefighter. Not surprised. Um, OJ Simpson, big star, attractive, black male, big point, more on television more than probably a lot of other folks at that time. I actually forgot. Johnny Cochran, I re- just read that big chunk from his book which is great right in line with where we're at in the text Johnny Cochran has many interviews but he has one specifically talking about this jury and the black female jurists and it's such a poignant quote I'm going to see if I can find it before we go off the air but it's extraordinary I posted and uh, it gets right to a lot of what retired firefighter just shared also but I'll hush Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up
3: the, there's there's a little little bit more that i forgot- can, can i add on uh
0: didn't take too long but yes sir
3: yeah uh you know just before o j Jim brown who actually admitted not only to uh mistreating females it was primarily black females had he been in the same situation he he would have he would have, uh, I believe, would have been marked as innocent also, because O.J. actually was a was a second, but yet more popular, of example of a great football player that the uh, the white uh, advertisement uh, uh, factions decided because Jim Brown was the model for that because you know because he I, because he's not like O.J. from a political standpoint, uh, but but uh I think jim brown would have had he been in the same situation would have would have uh also been uh identified as, as innocent also
0: much obliged uh let's see other folks uh with the hand up commentary to share proceed. Have you heard? Greetings read in Ohio, Yes, ma'am.
6: okay, um, I have a bunch of notes. I'll try to pick out the ones that are uh, I guess the most important. so starting out with the first chapter in the segment, I did take note of the term racial instead of racism or racist being used when um, Tubin had the whole part about um, discussing some of Mr. Cochran's previous cases. And even that part right there, when I had first read it, it seemed like it was meant to to sway the reader as far as Mr. Cochran's true motivations for being an attorney. And almost like he was the... What was it what is the man name Crump? I think his his last name is Crump. like the crump of his time, or I guess you know, Crump, the attorney who like represents a lot of the black males families, the from the black males who are um, killed by race soldiers, that kind of reminds me that section kind of reminds me of 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 that. Um, and one thing that stood out to me was that same section was how Toobin said the defense did not test any of the blood. I think that chapter was called something about the blood or something like Ah. that. And it seems like that would be, I think that might be maybe another instance of him cherry picking different tidbits. So maybe they didn't test like all 50,000, I'm being facetious, but all 50,000 drops that, Mark Furman said that. I'm sorry. I think that might be further on in the text. Never mind. They didn't test the blood. I'll leave it there. Uh, I, I'm kind of questioning the part about the death qualified juries. Uh, I never heard of that term and also how death, uh, the death penalty qualified juries would more likely, uh, vote guilty. So, I'm almost wondering if the the prosecution um, didn't regret uh, taking the death penalty off as an option for that case. The whole it was kind of frustrating. The whole part about Marsha Clark thought of black female jurors and how they were supposed to be the term was her women and her jurors and how she had even like a whole little fan club that Tubin had to point out and how they would like smile at her and um, still write her letters, things like that. And it kind of reminded me of like a mistress on a plantation and those were her favorite jurors. Um, those are like, you know, her her slaves basically. So it's definitely another example to me of how black people are portrayed as childish and as emotional
4: yeah.
6: by Tubin, which he does numerous times throughout the text. The also, uh, the part about about uh, Marcia Clark, gun-toting Marsha Clark because of the whole airport issue, but how she disregarded the advice from the millionaire, what was his name, Donald uh, Vincent, the Ph.D. who founded uh, litigation sciences and Decision Quest, which was interesting. So you would think that you would want to listen to someone who was very um, knowledgeable in that field. But for her to just kind of go on her own, um, I don't know, just kind of go on her own gut, which seems like that's something that I've heard a lot from people in law enforcement. Like I guess the gut feeling is supposed to be better than, I don't know, like actual science or data, anything like that. Um, I think the part about, uh where they did the mock jury and one black female had said, supposedly said in every relationship and I'm paraphrasing in every relationship, there's a, always a little trouble and people get slapped around sometimes. That doesn't even sound reasonable or realistic. Uh Then there are a couple of terms and I guess I'll, I guess I'll try to narrow it down to three more things. A couple of terms that I didn't quite understand, which was the psychosexual results, or it was psychosexual something, when Dr. Vincent, you know, Vincent, who had the PhD, how he was kind of describing the black female mock jurors' response to O.J., which kind of plays into what everybody else was saying—how handsome he was, and you know how he was the the personification of a the successful black male and how Marsha Clark was just, as was mentioned, I think at least five or six times a, a, a B, a B word. Um, he meant, uh, to, um, to then mention how Ito was carried away with excitement. It carried away with the excitement of the moment during the part about the uh, sequestration and he, I feel like that's another possible uh, racist attempt to remove any um, logical thinking from another non-white person and not just a non-white person, but a non-white judge. He also said that he was soft on the jurors who wanted to be dismissed. And the last thing I had to look up was amniocentiness. I didn't, the question about basically, um, um, it was looking, they didn't define it. So I had to look it up. I I forgot how to pronounce it, but basically you are, you test the amniotic fluid for any birth defects. And I couldn't understand why that would be a question for, um, jury selection and I'll meet my line. Thank you
0: amniocentesis I think is how they say it I don't know how that's relevant for this trial either was I don't know Nicole Brown Simpson pregnant at the time like yeah, I'm not sure much obliged uh, Red in Ohio I forgot to highlight that gun toting Marsha Clark now imagine if Johnny Cochran firearm LAX running to get my trying to pull an OJ from the Hertz rental to, to the gate <laughs> there would have been two people on trial like Johnny Cochran stopped with a gun and maybe the knife that OJ used toxic black males at six uh, Did we have other folks who dialed in with a hand up much obliged Red in Ohio let's see other folks with a hand up commentary to share double-check. I'll get some of my notes in as well. Make sure that people don't accuse me of being uh, what they call bias. Uh, So this is Marsha Clark. Yes, sir, Thomas in New York. I'll get in. We'll let Marsha Clark connect with her women and boys and girls uh, really quick, and then we'll hear Thomas. Uh, So she writes, on another floor of the courthouse, Johnny was busy making the same baseless charge. We're really concerned about the tenor of the questions and the way they go after certain jurors, he said. If there is a pattern, we'll be asking the judge to look into it. I couldn't believe it. They harass Asians, they boot non-blacks at every turn, and they accuse us of targeting minorities? Blacks made up nearly 60% of the initial jury pool. We couldn't have gotten rid of them all if we wanted to. The defense ended up bringing a raft of Wheeler motions against us, but we came prepared with a list of reasons for every black juror we excused, and they couldn't make a dent in us. It was clear that Johnny and Bob's intent was to poison the jury pool with insinuations of racism, and they succeeded. Several days later, Bill drew a black woman to question. We really had high hopes for her. She wore a smart, tailored business suit and had smiled at me warmly during the hardship questioning. Bill had just begun his very gentle questioning when she fixed him with an angry glare. I don't know. You make me feel like I'm on trial here. Really? She'd obviously read the news accounts about the juror who felt riled and decided that she too would jump on the race bandwagon metaphor. A look of shock and panic passed over Bill's face. He struggled to find words to reassure her and then defuse the situation but he was mortified. I could see that this process was just tearing him to pieces, metaphor, and after that we agreed that I would question nearly all the remaining black jurors. We finished the formal voir dire early in November. By now, the jury pool had been winnowed down to under 50 bodies. Ah, this is kind of a little further than we went. I will stop because I said stay in the chronology. We didn't get that far yet. I'll stop there. Thomas in New York.
2: Yes, sir. Good evening to all the callers. Happy New Year. Um, the genius of Johnny Cochran. Man, Red said she was. She mentioned Johnny Cochran and Benjamin Crump together. Could you imagine Benjamin Crump trying to? Oh man, he was. Oh, if you don't, oh, man. Um, amidst the character assassination he attempted on Johnny Cochran, uh, he cheated on his bad wife it had a side piece. Um, Gus, when was this book published? 1996. 1996. That's when this book was published. Yes, sir. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So that's before... Shapiro's um son's overdose. No problem. Um his genius in defending Reginald Denny or using the case to prove um, lack of police presence during the LA riots, um, the police not being around to protect the citizens like Reginald Denny, um, which I think they said was never resolved. Um, he said um uh, consistently that um he used the same defense police racism and he kept winning <laughs> maybe because it was true. Um, he defended Todd Bridges. Um, what you talking about, Willis? Um, he used the defense that racist Hollywood establishment led to his drug abuse as <laughs> defense tactic. I mean, this is genius. Um, he said Johnny Cochran had the ability to turn anything into racism, and I get accused of that all the time. Uh, <laughs> I honestly think it's logical when you come to the conclusion that white people have a code and they have a system of white supremacy and they're actively conspiring against black people, you know, you kind of could turn anything into it. To also blame Marsha Clark for the jury selection. Uh, mind you, I think in an earlier meeting, they it wasn't her who chose to go to the downtown um, court area. It was um, due to race reasons. They didn't want to move it, um, I guess, after Simi Valley. Um, these poor jurors were sequestered for nine months away from their lives, jobs, family, and friends. I think um, that's impossible to do today because of the Internet and how many ways you could access it. But um, the white people blamed this mostly non-white jury as the reason this Negro got off. They weren't competent. <laughs> they weren't competent enough to hear evidence and decide murder. Um, whether there was reasonable doubt or not. Um I think that what he leaves out, and I'm still waiting, because we're on, like, I don't know how many meetings, um, she still has not had motive, <laughs> intent, a murder weapon. The evidence collected from a, a secure crime scene hasn't happened. Ethical offices hasn't happened. So much reasonable doubt, so much. Right now, we haven't even gotten to the case. Um, It's already over. (laughs) Um, You know, I think um, one of the other things was Johnny Coffey didn't seem to have a problem finding reasonable doubt. Um, It seems like he was finding that all the time as the prosecutor, um, indicting police officers there and um, getting people um, some type of compensation. So he didn't have that problem. Um, I'm glad the female caller used uh, talked about Nicole. Because it was alleged before this trial started, um, people were coming on the news programs and they were alleging that she was a big time cokehead. And so was Goldman. And they were killed in a specific way called the Colombian necktie by some type of cartel out in um, California. Um, so that that was the, the rumor that was never investigated as the police because O.J. was the person who did it. Uh, O.J. was very popular with black ladies. Um, He was up there at that time with um, Billy Dee Williams, you know, older, black male. Um, He came off like a very affluent, you know, with a look, you know, always dressed in very fine suits, designer shoes, um, drove very nice cars anytime you saw him. Um, Big time superstar that was on TV, Um, I believe every Monday or Monday Night Football on the sidelines, um, always looked like a million dollars. Um, you know, so I think that that, um, personage, um, you know, uh, um, appealed quite like that and be like that. Uh, at this time in history in the nineties, the relationship between blacks and whites is very different than it is today. Um, black people were much more aggressive, um, especially to each other. Just look at the murders, Um, Whites were not as refined as they are today. Um, I I could see this um, jury. um, Hold on, I lost my notes. I could see the jury, um, you know, questioning the blood and questioning some of these things because, you know, the the attitudes toward cops were very different. Um, um, And lastly, uh, I remember white men were continuously in the news, uh, attacked Marsha Clark's appearance. Uh, they called her ugly They made fun of her facial features, especially her curly hair. Um, she had hair that was very coarse for a white woman. Um, and, um, they made her get her hair straightened and take on more of a feminine look at some point of the trial. I don't remember it being this early, but they just mentioned it. Um, but I remember being shocked. She just came to court one day with straight hair and a fitted suit, and, you know, she she had her nails done and was wearing a little makeup. It was like, oh, it was totally different than, you know, what we saw before. Um, so I, you know, thought that was very interesting. Um, oh, I did have one more thing here. Um, uh, Judge Lance Ito, um, I remember this was the first time I ever saw, it, and I never even conceptualized it would be a Chinese judge in America. I was like, whoa. But um, I think because he was supposed to be a minority, therefore he would have, um, would have the prejudices that a black or white judge would have. Um, what I remember was from the start um, of the jury selection, he was weak. Um, they kept using this tactic during the whole trial called the sidebar. And uh, out of an eight-hour um, TV Thomas, day trial, at least three sir. of these hours
0: would be. We've not got uh-huh. to the trial. No sidebars. We're still picking the jury.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I, I was just going through and see but I, I didn't have anything else
0: to say. Much obliged. Much obliged. Didn't mean to interrupt, but we are trying to stay within. We will, because that is going to come up, the sidebars and all that. Oh, yeah. We will have lots and lots of fun with that Uh, incidentally this trial could not be anywhere but downtown Los Angeles uh, which was covered in the book it was not moved there because of semi valley even though that was said like he talked about that 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 was said that oh yeah we don't want to repeat a semi valley we want to make sure that this is on the up and up and you know black people on the jury like because of the earthquake damage that they had uh, before and because they knew this was going to be a circus as they say um It had to be at the downtown L.A. courthouse uh, because that's the only courthouse that had the facilities, the metal detectors, the press area, everything that this was going to require for almost a full year. So it had to be downtown. No choice. Nothing to do with. They were constricted in that regard. That was explained to in the text. Uh, Let's see the quick notes and then we'll get to the second audio segment Uh, let's see Uh, 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 uh. he started off this segment saying that Johnny Cochran after the Deadwilder case had an air of invincibility and that just struck me as odd because if not out and out inaccurate because he lost the case I don't know how you would lose a big prime time case and then feel invincible if you just lost, but maybe I'm inaccurate. Uh, let's see. this And then, like this. How do you know? Like how you are attri- uh, attributing all of this. Did Johnny Cochran say he felt invincible? <laughs> like after the trial, did you talk to him and get an interview? He says, as always, Cochran's motives were mixed. Reducing his income at that moment, allowed him to pare down his divorce settlement with Barbara. Like, Really? Is that detailed? Did I miss that part in Journey to Justice where he describes that as being part of his motivation for taking this job? Like, man. Uh, Let's see. Next. Okay. Now this one. Old masturbating Jeff Tubin. Now we got all this background information on the Todd Bridges case and how no count Johnny Cochran accusing white people playing the race card and all that for Todd Bridges. And he gives us a Dead Wilder involved the murder prosecution. Oh, excuse me. After Dead Wilder, his most prominent case after Dead Wilder involved the murder prosecution of former Black Panther Geronimo Pratt, who was convicted over Cochran's vehement insistence that he was framed. The case became and remains a cause celebre in black Los Angeles. And that's it. No, nothing else no detail and I mean talk about the similarity that's why I said this is the next book that we're reading Last Man Standing The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Jijaga Pratt he's a World War II veteran two times over while Jeff Tubman is sitting at home masturbating on Zoom Geronimo Pratt is a two time Vietnam veteran and a member of the Black Panther Party and he was for it's exactly the same if you you know follow the evidence Mark Furman it is exactly the same where in this one they knew he didn't do this they knew he sat in jail for 27 years and yep didn't commit these crimes the tennis court murders as they say we know he didn't commit these crimes ended up getting like a five million dollar settlement I think he was released one year after this book was published, ninety-seven, I believe, and Johnny Cochran standing right there saying the same thing he had said the entire time they practiced. Or he was even more vehement uh, in that case because it was such a glent. Next book, Last Man Standing, Jack Olson. Uh, but that's men. I mean, Jeff Tubin. You should have a lot more to say on that one. Major act of white supremacy, racism. Uh, let's see take on LAPD in nearly equal terms. I don't know what that means. Uh, Let's see. Milking the city's coffers on behalf of his clients. The lawyers in his firms, all members of minority groups worked with great zeal to exploit the city's racial climate for profit. It's like the terms, like I I said before, he used the term conjure in describing the defense team. It wasn't that they used their ingenuity, their brilliance, their expertise. No, it was they conjured like some Negro magic type of a thing. It's the same type of languaging here. They're milking the city. Not that you have corrupt officers like Mark Furman and the type who would protect a Mark Furman for decades. Who should be fired, prosecuted, all the rest of it? That he's making an effort to combat them from the meager stance that he can. No, no, no. He's milking the city's coffers and exploiting the city's racial climate. That's another metaphor too. Not, not even exploiting racism, and exploit that gives the impression that he's doing something incorrect. Not that he's attempting to counter racism, white supremacy. He's exploiting old Jeff Tubin, uh, let's see and then he I just said now he said before that they were conjuring and then this time around he says Con- uh, Cochrane worked reliable magic with black, exactly what I said Negro magic he gets in there and casts some old spooky spells ho, ho, ho. Uh, at least in part because he could turn anything into a racial issue Cochrane knew that a black defendant could scarcely go wrong crying racism that's a phrase i've t- talked about for years as though we're just little children little boys and girls he <laughs> practiced you called me a name and stuff not this is a system of terrorism you just cry racism and play the race card and conjure up old nigger complaints and things milking us out of money old slave and that's what Henry in Chicago said, if I had read this before and not really been paying attention to those types of words. Whole different assessment of this. Let's see. Different strokes. Yes, yes. Todd Bridges. Again, I can. How much attention we're going to put on the Todd Bridges case? How much attention we put on Geronimo Pratt? Next, not the Todd Bridges isn't important. Uh, this is a. I just got to get this one because Johnny Cochran called Jeffrey Tubin a liar twice. In his book, he called him a liar in the video with Charlie Rose. Part of it was around this specifically. I uh, says, Cochran stands for the cause of all African Americans. Therefore, Simpson does too. To do this, Cochrane started by casting aside his previous, if private, doubts about Simpson's innocence. Pause right there. Cochrane said vehemently, this is a lie. He believed O.J. Simpson was innocent from beginning to end. No doubt, no hesitation. Uh, he he said this in, like I said, the video with Charlie Rose, and in his book, uh, he had never had any doubts about this, and he challenged, "Where's the source at? Who did I say? You know, oh, I don't know that O.J. Simpson might have done it. Maybe he killed him. Who did he say that to? He, you know, call a source out. Let's hear it." Uh, continue as Cochrane. Uh, Put it in an interview with Katie Couric on the Today Show shortly after he was hired in the OJ Simpson case. I think a winning takes on the form of him being found not guilty and getting out because this is one of those cases where from the very beginning he said, I'm innocent, which he did. And you believe him? Couric asked. And I believe him, Cochran uh, replied, I believe him absolutely, which is what he's always said. Keurig pursued the issue, asking 100% in your heart that he is not guilty. Cochrane was adamant in my heart. I believe that absolutely. Where is the doubt? Where is the I don't know. I got a slight corner if you catch me at 2 a.m. and, you know, question me about that glove, me. No, never unequivocally did not do it. That's what he said. Uh, let's see chapter 10. Mm-mm-mm. I guess just the last quick thing I'll get to, and then we can rock it off to the second audio segment, uh, the, the push, or actually I won't even give Tubin the last word. I'll give Mr. Cochran the last word because this was the piece I was looking for about the black jurors. And then we will ski daddle to the second audio segment. Uh, so he writes, This is about the jury selection continuing. This is on 256. Moreover, I was adamant about turning everything else out so I could prepare for jury selection. My first task for the team. It is a commonplace of legal commentary to note that cases are won and lost when their juries are picked. It's one of those common places that happen to be true. Like most successful trial lawyers, I have a great deal of confidence in my ability to select jurors. This time around, however, I would be working with an extraordinary jury consultant named Joellen Demetrius, whose record of success with Los Angeles juries is virtually unmatched in her field. Her initial public opinion surveys revealed a number of heartening facts. For one thing, fully 46% 46 of those surveyed said they would like to believe O.J. didn't do it. That is an extraordinary reservoir of goodwill in a society in which little more than lip service is usually paid to the presumption of innocence. The polling also found that majorities of every ethnic group felt the LAPD frequently treated African-American suspects unfairly. While more than 9 out of 10 of those surveyed had followed the case closely through the media, and had an unusually detailed knowledge of the physical and scientific evidence likely to be presented, a whopping 66% of all respondents did not believe O.J. had enough time to commit the murders. Duh! All these sentiments and a willingness to entertain the notion of O.J.'s innocence were strongest amongst middle-aged black women. These findings, many of which cut across ethnic and gender lines were not a product of some reflexive racial attitude, but of historical and cultural experience. African America's African American communities are places where the vitality of oral history remains strong. Black women are the primary repository of their community's collective memory. In Los Angeles, That means they recall not only the lives of their immediate families and neighbors, but also the outcome of legal cases that stand as landmarks in their community like Deadweiler and Settles. They have had to assume that role because blacks for so many generations were denied any real access to the media through which the larger society formalizes its history newspapers magazines and books the persistence of such orally transmitted memories does not render african-americans of either sex unwilling to convict criminals who happen to be black they hand down such convictions every day in courtrooms all across the country in fact As our pre-trial survey found, 65% of all the blacks polled felt African Americans usually received justice from Los Angeles legal system. But because they do possess those unclouded historical memories, African American jurors, particularly in Los Angeles, are less likely to assume the police are always well-meaning and infallible, and these jurors are more stringent ...than those of some other ethnic groups in demanding the state meet its burden of proof. Through polling and the use of focus groups conducted in a separate Santa Monica facility, Joe Ellen and I continued to work on the questionnaire we would present to prospective jurors. The document we finally compiled was 76 pages long and contained 294 questions. They ranged from the standard inquiries about familial and residential history to questions about education and attitudes toward domestic violence, ethnic prejudice, DNA, and expert witnesses. We asked about their exposure to media coverage of the case, as well as their familiarity with the Brentwood area. We probed not only their religious and political views, but also their preferences in hobbies and entertainment. We asked how often they watched Monday Night Football and whether simply filling out the questionnaire itself had caused them to form an opinion about this case. At the end of the day, Joe Ellen promised we would have a more detailed and systematic understanding of our prospective jurors than they did of themselves. We will stop there and get back to old Jeff Tubin, but that was from Johnny Cochran. Journey to Justice. If you have other thoughts, observations, make note. We'll get audio segment two, which is short, and then we'll be back to wrap things up. Context of white supremacy, Jeffrey Tubin the run of his life, The People Versus O.J. Simpson. We are picking up with old Faye Resnick.
7: There is surely no single appropriate way to mourn the loss of a friend. It is fair to say that Faye Resnick coped with the death of Nicole Brown Simpson in a way that reflected Resnick's bizarre and chaotic life. She chose to grieve with a psychic, who came up with some useful career advice, as well as spiritual succor. Talking with me shortly before Simpson's trial began, Resnick said, When I went to see a psychic after Nicole was murdered, the woman gave me a message from Nicole. The psychic said, You will be writing a book. Nicole wants you to be faithful to your heart. She wants you to call it as you see it. At the time of the trial, Faye Resnick was thirty-seven years old, a native Californian with a trim build and orange hair. When we met, she was wearing bangles on both arms and three rings on her left hand including one on her thumb. As the ex-wife of Paul Resnick, a wealthy Los Angeles businessman, she dabbled in charity projects and worked hard on her appearance. Nicole's advice from beyond the grave actually fit well with Resnick's needs. Faced with a dwindling divorce settlement and an expensive lifestyle, Faye needed the money a book deal could provide. The milieu in which she and Nicole lived is neatly summarized in a brief sentence in the book she eventually did write. Almost every woman I know has had breast implants. Resnick and Nicole met in 1990. They became close friends after Faye separated from Paul Resnick in early 1991. Resnick became friendly with O.J., too as he and Nicole pursued their on-again, off-again relationship in 1993 and 1994. After the murder, however, she became convinced that O.J. had killed Nicole, and she was scathing on the subject. According to Resnick, you would go to his house, and the children were not able to play in the house. She added that the kids were not even allowed in the kitchen at certain times, because O.J. and his housekeeper couldn't stand the mess they would make. O.J.'s a double cancer, I'm a double cancer, she said. I get it, I don't like messes, but kids are kids. Resnick implicitly blamed the stress of mediating between O.J. and Nicole for the recurrence of her own drug problem. In the decade before the murders, she did two stints at the Betty Ford Rehabilitation Center. And in June 1994, the week before Nicole's murder, she checked into the Exodus Recovery Center in Marina del Rey. Shortly after the murders, Resnick said she began to fear that she would be killed by O.J.'s loyalists. Within a week or so of the murders, Resnick reported her gathering fears to Arthur Barron's, a lawyer she knew through fundraising efforts for the Beverly Hills school system. Barron's helped Resnick through her first meetings with the prosecutors in the case, and as they talked further at other meetings, the idea of a book came to the surface. The book idea got started because she wanted to do something to be of service to the Simpson children and battered women, Barron said. She told me at the same time that she had maintained a diary about what was going on between O.J. and Nicole. She was afraid for her well-being. I told her for her safety to record on tape what she remembered. Resnick made some recordings and gave them to the lawyer. Barron's might have protected Resnick's safety merely by placing her tapes in a safe deposit box. Instead, he turned to Warren Cowan, a public relations executive, for advice on how to make use of them. Cowan put Barons in touch with his client, Michael Viner, a former record company executive who had founded Dove, a company devoted principally to audiobooks, a decade earlier with his wife, the actress Deborah Raffin. Viner quickly signed Resnick to a six-figure advance and then looked for a collaborator for her. I knew Mike Walker in passing, and I had seen him on Nightline and Larry King Live, Viner explained, and I sought him out. Shortly after the contracts were signed, Viner sent Walker and Resnick to a ski chalet he owns in Stowe, Vermont, where he gave them three and a half weeks to produce a manuscript, in secrecy. The partnership had its strains. According to Walker, at one point I telephoned Viner and said, look, This woman is driving me nuts. She wants cappuccino. The next day, a cappuccino machine arrived by Federal Express. Ultimately, however, the pair produced the manuscript of what became the book, Nicole Brown Simpson, The Private Diary of a Life Interrupted. Resnick and Walker's portrait presented Nicole as a brainless, sex-obsessed young woman whose banality was exceeded only by that of her ex-husband. For example, Nicole was portrayed as having an enthusiasm for fellatio with virtual strangers, a practice Resnick called the Brentwood Hello. More significant as far as the trial was concerned, Resnick depicted Simpson as an insanely jealous former spouse who openly discussed his thoughts of murdering Nicole. In the book, Resnick quoted Simpson as saying such things as, I can't take this, Faye. I can't take this. I mean it. I'll kill that bitch. When I asked Resnick if she had any literary influences, she said, I wasn't inspired by a book to do this. The movie that inspired me was The Pelican Brief. The irony of Resnick's book is that notwithstanding the accusations against O.J., it amounted to a generous gift to the defendant and another example of the ill fortune of the prosecutors in this case. With her history of drug abuse, Resnick would make a dicey prosecution witness in the best of circumstances. Still, if she had simply come forward after the murder and told her story to the police, the prosecutors probably would have called her to the stand. But the book made Resnick anathema to Clark and Hodgman. It represented the cash for trash problem writ large. Resnick undoubtedly had close ties to both O.J. and Nicole, and many, if not most, of her accusations had the ring of truth about them. But her conspicuous cashing in on her access to the principles would have given the defense too much ammunition in their cross-examination. Both during and after the trial, Resnick emerged as one of Simpson's most vocal public accusers. But in fact, her greed and that of her publisher made her an accomplice to O.J.'s acquittal. Aiming for maximum publicity, Viner and Resnick decided to release Private Diary in the middle of jury selection on October 17th. The news media reacted predictably, hyping Resnick's accusations against Simpson. On the day it came out, Resnick's book actually rated rather modestly on the Simpson News Richter scale bigger than any Furman story, but smaller, certainly, than the release of the tape of Nicole's plaintive calls to 911. What made this story different was that it broke when Lance Edo was in charge of the case, and his reaction to it revealed much about him and the future course of the trial. Lance Edo thought a great deal about the news media. In a casual aside in court one day, Judge Ito remarked that he had read five newspapers a day. In a later order to potential jurors about their television-watching habits, he specifically named, apparently off the top of his head, twenty-five different programs that were off-limits, including Mary Lou, Lisa, Jenny Jones, Sally Jesse Raphael, Oprah, Donahue, Geraldo... The news on MTV, and something called Press Box on a network called Prime Ticket. During his off hours, the judge wore a Today Show baseball cap. In the middle of jury selection, Ito even gave a much hyped interview to Tricia Toyota at KCBS Television in Los Angeles. Though the judge said nothing sensational in his conversations with Toyota, Ito definitely complicated jurors' efforts to avoid news coverage of the trial. He even had to dismiss some potential jurors because they had seen parts of his TV interview. Throughout the trial, Ito would often delay court sessions so that he could usher well-known media figures, like Geraldo Rivera and the occasional movie star, into his chambers for private chats. As a result of Ito's media obsession, the import of the Resnick book eluded him. The sensible course would have been to ignore Private Diary, and if the subject came up at all, to remind the jurors that they were to rely only on evidence presented in court. Like every other sensation in the case, Resnick would have faded too. But Ito couldn't leave Fay Resnick alone. On Tuesday morning, October 18th, Without even being asked by the parties, Ito suspended jury selection for 48 hours. He told the prospective jurors, because of the publication of a book that has caused the court great concerns about the ability of Mr. Simpson to get a fair trial, I need to look into the ramifications. The judge even wrote to the heads of the major news networks and asked them to cancel interviews they had scheduled with Resnick. CNN complied. But Connie Chung's interview with Resnick on CBS went ahead. Ito's decision to stop jury selection prompted a predictable reaction. It fueled intense curiosity about the book in the public, and probably in the prospective jurors as well. Thanks to the push from Ito, Private Diary rocketed to the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. Passing Pope John Paul II's Crossing the Threshold of Hope, As for Resnick's purported desire to help the Simpson children, Dove donated $10,000 to the foundation Nicole's parents established in her memory. This largesse amounted to about one cent for each of the one million or so copies of private diary that were sold. Surprised as anyone by Ito's reaction, the defense lawyers tried to use the Resnick crisis to provoke the judge into abandoning the case entirely. In a private conference in Chambers on Wednesday morning, October 19th, Shapiro made a rambling plea for Ito to do one or more of the following, dismiss all charges against Simpson, find Barron's Viner and Dove books guilty of obstruction of justice, sanction the district attorney's office for failing to prevent publication of the book, and or delay the trial for a year and release the defendant on bail. With the exception of the request for a continuance, all of Shapiro's demands were absurd, but Ito patiently waited out Shapiro's harangue. As for bail, Shapiro said Simpson's attempt to flee on June 17th should not be held against him. He has now had time to reflect upon this case, to reflect upon the evidence, and to be in a place where he wants to contest these charges in a court of law. And he wants to clear his name." "'Shapiro said. "'Clark burned when she heard the defense lawyer complain "'about how his client was suffering from the pre-trial publicity. "'The defense has also leaked, as the court is very well aware, "'in a very hideous and damaging way,' Clark said, "'in a characteristic sputtering indignation. "'They have attempted to speak of Mark Furman "'with the most vicious of allegations concerning racism.' one of the most inflammatory charges that could possibly be made. They have attempted to capitalize on it, again, in the questionnaire with every question posed concerning the issue of racial issues and racism. The defendant is again playing a race card while denying they're playing a race card. A very subtle game, but a very dangerous one for the people, because the officer who found the key piece of damaging evidence they have attempted to discredit in the most hideous of ways... Shapiro hated being confronted with his own fingerprints on the racial controversies in the case. As always, he wanted things both ways. He wanted to use race to get Simpson acquitted, but he never wanted to admit that this was what he was doing. Regarding the race issue, Shapiro said, I have stood before you, I have stood before the American public and said race is not and will not be an issue in this case. I still stand by that. Credibility will be an issue in this case. Regarding the article in The New Yorker, Shapiro went on, reacting to what Clark had said. I was assured that it was going to be a photo essay, pictures only, no captions. This was not true. I'd never said a word to Shapiro about how our interview might be illustrated. Shapiro went on before the judge. Jeff Tubin's article came out, and I was shocked to find my picture there by innuendo, suggesting that I had somehow made derogatory remarks toward Detective Furman. That is not true. In fact, a careful reading of that article, as well as an analysis by journalists, have the article saying that was a theory that may possibly be explored by the defense. This monologue by Shapiro was more than Cochrane could take. He had been on the case for about four months at this point, and thus far he had carefully deferred to Shapiro as lead counsel. But Shapiro's desire to finesse the race issue, that is, to call Furman a racist, and then deny that race mattered in the case, appalled Cochrane. Over these four months, Cochrane had spent more time with Simpson than Shapiro had and the black lawyer knew he would be taking a major, if not the lead role, when the trial began. Cochran wanted race front and center in the case, and he wanted to let Ito and the prosecutors know that he wasn't about to apologize for it either. "'I just want to say something about this race card,' Cochran interjected, beginning a monologue that could have served as a personal credo. "'I have been trying cases for a very long time,' both civil and criminal throughout this country, and anybody who doesn't believe that when you have a case like this, when you have a case of murder, that race plays a part in everything, we don't introduce that. There are racial issues. These jurors know it. Everybody knows it. Race plays a part in everything in America. Every time people don't believe race plays an issue, they wait until every few years until a major riot comes along. And then people say, well, we are not going to take it anymore. And that's very unfortunate. But that's brought about from people who are totally insensitive to the problems of race in America and the underclass. For Johnny Cochran, the connections between his millionaire client and the problems of race in America and the underclass were so obvious as not to require elaboration. But what was the point of all of this conversation? Wasn't this supposed to be a legal argument about a motion in a criminal case? It was, and yet Shapiro was carrying on about his controversies with the media. Clark was raging against Shapiro and Cochran was discoursing about the black underclass. This was how Lance Ito conducted oral argument, as a sort of group therapy through collective stream of consciousness, a process in which lawyers could talk for as long as they wanted about whatever happened to pop into their heads. The subject the lawyers were nominally discussing was whether Simpson should be released on bail. As part of a subtle campaign to win Simpson's confidence, in part by showing that he himself had confidence in Simpson, Cochran suggested that Ito speak to the defendant about whether he should be released on bail. So, seated on a chair in front of Ito's desk, Simpson said, "'Well, I feel I've been attacked here today. I'm an innocent man. I want to get to a jury. I want to get it over with as soon as I can.' I have two young kids out there. That's my only concern. In the beginning, when they told me we should slow down, maybe we should slow down, I've read Mr. Jerry Spence's book that you shouldn't rush the jury. I've got two young kids out there that don't have a mother. And I didn't do it. I want to get to the trial as soon as I can get to trial. I've been told by everybody that I know, everybody that I spoke to, it is impossible for me to get a fair trial at this point. They told me maybe we should wait. Maybe we should put it off. I can't afford to be away from my kids any longer than I have to be away from my kids at this point. Mrs. Clark, Miss Clark, said that I was trying to run. Everyone knows that I called my father-in-law. I was not in the frame of mind. I admit that I was not in the right frame of mind at the time I was trying to get to my wife. Your Honor, excuse me. Shapiro broke in, trying to stop his client's increasingly meandering speech. I was headed back home, Simpson continued. Shapiro turned to O.J. Mr. Simpson, I am telling you that I will not allow you to speak, and I will resign as your lawyer if you continue to do so. This threat, contained in a transcript that the media-savvy Shapiro knew would be released to the public, was actually his way of taking a shot at his rival, Howard Weitzman. Weitzman had been criticized for failing to make just this kind of effort to prevent O.J. from talking to the police on June 13th. This time, Simpson did stop talking. As he would so often, Ito backed away from the precipice. His fury about the Resnick book cooled, and he agreed to resume jury selection the following day. Ito, of course, did not release Simpson on bail. He tinkered with the process only by stopping the questioning of jurors in front of one another, a change he hoped would encourage candor. The Resnick controversy did provoke Ito into taking a hard line with the jurors on the question of their own habits of media consumption. After the Resnick book was published, the judge ordered the remaining candidates not to watch any television, read any newspapers or magazines, or set foot in any bookstore. Ito discharged one juror after she admitted to watching videotaped episodes of Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place, no matter that her husband had first deleted all the commercials. A man was excused because he had watched cartoons with his grandson, as was a woman who watched a Barbara Stanwyck movie on television. With each winnowing, the jury pool grew even more African-American and female. Finally, the day came when the parties were to exercise their peremptory challenges, which would allow them to remove jurors without having to offer reasons. Each side had twenty challenges. For the defense, Joellen Demetrius consulted closely with Shapiro and Cochran. She had been in the courtroom for every moment of jury selection, and the lawyers huddled with her about each decision. Demetrius had put the key findings from her research in a memorandum to the defense team. General Considerations for Jury Selection Under the heading Most Preferred Jurors, Demetrius listed the following attributes. Young, Less Educated, Blue Collar, African American, No Prior Jury Service, Lower Income. These were predictably the mirror image of Vincent's findings. Cochran and Shapiro hewed closely to her suggestions. Marcia Clark had allowed Vincent to sit in court for a single day of jury selection, after which she banished him. She never consulted him again. On December 8th, the parties exercised the last of their challenges and accepted a panel of twelve jurors and twelve alternates. Their ethnic profile represented a stunning divergence from the group that had originally reported for duty and even more so from Los Angeles County as a whole. Of the 24 jurors, there were 15 African Americans, 6 whites, and 3 Hispanics, in a county that is just 11% black. Over the many months to come, 10 jurors would be replaced by alternates. Curiously, no alternates were ever removed from the case. Based on their answers to the questionnaires, the 12 jurors who ultimately decided the case against O.J. Simpson had the following characteristics. All 12 were Democrats. Two were college graduates. Not one juror read a newspaper regularly. Nine lived in rented homes. Three owned homes. Two had supervisory or management responsibilities at work. Ten did not. 8. Regularly watched television tabloid news shows like Hard Copy. Vincent's polling data had found a predilection for the tabloids, a reliable predictor of belief in Simpson's innocence. 5. Said they or a family member had personally endured a negative experience with law enforcement. 5. Thought it was acceptable to use force on a family member. 9. Three-quarters of the jury thought O.J. Simpson was less likely to have murdered his wife because he had excelled at football. The final group included one African-American man, one Hispanic man, two white women, and eight African-American women. On the whole, Marcia Clark was pleased, especially with the alternates. She and Bill Hodgman didn't even exercise all twenty of their peremptory challenges. Context
0: of white supremacy. So we will pick up next week, Chapter 11, The Dream Team. Next week, 2021. And we actually have two OJ programs next week. Steven Singular will be here, Legacy of Deception, White Man, Help the Defense Team During the Criminal Trial. Uh, he updated his book in 2016, but he goes into a lot of interesting information. I will quickly pivot because Marsha Clark's book picks up exactly where Tubin ends chapter 10 about the prosecution, not using any of their preemptory challenges. So I'll give you her tidbit and then we'll get to the callers. Marsha Clark writes in without a doubt, by the end, we still had four of our 20 PREEMPTORY CHALLENGES REMAINING. That's right. We didn't use every single one that we were entitled to exercise. I can't understand why a casual observer could assume that we missed an opportunity because of this. And, in fact, our detractors seized upon those four unused challenges, claiming that we could have kicked some of the clinkers and filled the slots with better prospects. No, we couldn't. Let me explain. During our nightly bouts of solitaire, Bill Hodgman and I kept precise tabs on the rotation of candidates within the pool. As days passed, the rating of the average juror in our pool, going by that one-to-five scale we developed, kept getting lower. Originally, Our population had a very strong contention of middle class, educated citizens. But remember, the first round of elimination, the hardship phase, drastically changed that. The solidly employed middle class had no appetite to serve on this case, and Judge Ito let them off without looking back. There went most of our potential fives and fours. Interestingly, they have the reverse system that the defense team had. So the defense team's ideal ideal juror candidates were labeled ones and twos, low numbers. The prosecution's ideal candidates were fives and fours, high numbers. Interesting. They did end up with ones and twos. Uh, The defense began their attacks on two categories of jurors. Those who were educated and those who weren't black. Ito let them strike many without using their preemptory challenges. We were left with virtually no fours and fives and only a few threes. By the time the defense's preemptory challenges had been exercised, we were down to our twos. We were playing a defensive game and we played it as cunningly as we could. The best we could do was make sure that the very worst jurors didn't find their way into the box. And the way the numbers were broke down, if we used even one more challenge, we would have called a batch of even sorrier prospects who would outnumber the preemptories we had left what would be the sense of knocking off one of our threes or even twos if most of the bodies who would take their places were ones. People who wouldn't have voted to convict if O.J. Simpson stood in front of them with a knife in his hand and shouted, I did it! The process of picking a jury had been so exhausting that when we finally got the twelfth juror both sides of the room broke into cheers. We were kissing, shaking hands, hugging each other. It was unbelievable, especially when you consider that only one side really had anything to celebrate. Skipping down a little bit. On balance, I'd never expended so much of myself picking a jury. The exhilaration that came from completing that phase, along with the positive feedback I'd gotten from my speech the previous day, led me to a false optimism. That night, on my way home, I spoke into my little tape recorder. We knew we'd wind up with an almost all-black jury. We were guaranteed to have basically a female black jury, and we do. But I think overall, we're not unhappy with the jury. Double negative. I think there's enough strong, fair ones that we'll get some kind of fair shake. I mean, it's certainly not the best panel I've ever seen, but maybe they'll rise to the occasion. I know I was living in a dream world, but you have to leave yourself a little hope moon rocks the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate if you didn't get to speak at all hand up do not wait till the last moment uh, to share let's see irie in louisiana if you have commentary to share didn't get to hear from you at all yeah. proceed
5: Hello, good evening, everybody, and uh, happy new year uh, going forward. I just wanted to say about, um, what's her name, Faye or whatever, and the judge um the, the issue they had with her doing interviews. I just find it, uh, I'm confounded. Why didn't he just do a gag order? I don't know if somebody can explain that, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Good night. Bless you.
0: You would generally have to be uh, involved in the trial in some way, like they can put a gag order on the uh, attorneys to say you can't talk about this. I think that's going to come up way later in the trial about the Furman tapes like, all right, you can't be talking about them or leaking stuff from them. Uh, But Faye Resnick was not involved in the trial. She's not an attorney. She wasn't even subpoenaed to be a witness. So the judge can't really order her to, you know, hush don't talk about she can say whatever she wants. If she wants to publish a book or what have you, they wouldn't really have a means to stop her from chatting it up or making a book, publishing it up as it were. Uh, oh,
5: okay. I, I, I was confused. I thought she was a witness for some reason. I, I had to step away. Okay. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lots of moving parts in this one here. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, retired firefighter in Florida read in, Ohio, Henry in Chicago, New York, Michael. Uh, excuse me, Thomas in New York. Uh, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? May I be heard? Oh, heard. Go ahead, man. Bred in Ohio.
6: Thank, thank you. Um, I'll be a lot quicker this time. Uh, Faye Resnick, the friend of Nicole Simpson. Her, the description of how she is. That was that was interesting, even him describing the type of jewelry that she wore. And the, I think she had like a ring on her thumb. I don't know why that needed to be mentioned. But then as Gus stated, he couldn't mention like the two sentences that the black male had said about, um, said during jury selection. Uh, but I, <laughs> with Say Resnick, one thing that I took note of was that Tubin said that she feared she would be killed by Simpson loyalists. I don't even know what that is. I understand that people, some people think that he did it. Some people think that he didn't do it, but as far as people would be so um, motivated uh, by the situation to start killing people possibly in like link to it, whether friends or family, that's ridiculous. Uh, And her book, uh, one of the most noteworthy sentences was every woman she knew had implant, breast implants. Seems like that's some type of esoteric thing. I don't know if that means that you have to have some sort of like a fake outward beauty to be with a successful man or be married. I, I didn't even understand that and why it needed to be pointed out. So Brentwood, hello. I don't think that I'm ever going to forget anything like that. And I've never heard of anything as ridiculous. And it kind of goes to the point of some other people saying, like, oh, she, Nicole, must have been really promiscuous. And maybe this, you know, that could also be a reason why she was, you know, killed. Not necessarily by OJ, but, you know, if you're promiscuous, then there can be a host of different uh People, a host of different suspects that you could have been involved with, especially if you're giving everybody that type of hello. Uh, again, with been making mention of Ito being celebrity exce- uh, obsessed uh, when it came to um, Ito interview interviewing or like needing to, I forgot what he said. Basically, have talks in his chambers with uh, Haro. I forgot his last name. The one uh, journalist or uh, interviewer that was pretty prominent at that time. Uh, all I remember about him was he had that huge mustache. Uh, that it seems like he keeps kind of making mention that Ito is not logical, and it's basically setting you up. This is a continual setup throughout the whole book that it was all these people's fault as to why um, OJ was not, uh, was not found guilty. Uh, and then the last part is about the jury selection. It's such a reoccurring theme that they're basically, basically keep saying that the jury was so illiterate. You think these people can't even read. And that's also the reason why, um, they couldn't find him guilty. They didn't care about evidence. They couldn't understand evidence. Uh, not just um, the, I forgot what it's called, like the the people who help out with um, dictating what, or giving advice to, uh, to either the defense or the prosecution about what type of jury they should have or what demographics of the jury they should have. Um, even the defense, as Tubin said, they want a jury that's less educated and when he was breaking down the the, the uh, details of the jury, they said two were college graduates, three were homeowners, most didn't read the newspaper, 75% or three-quarters, uh, thought O.J. didn't murder his wife because he was good at football. None of that makes, the, the, especially the last part, that doesn't make sense, how you can correlate somebody being good at a sport and that translating into him having such this high morality that, he wouldn't murder his wife. So it's really it's once again, it's really offensive that he's saying that this is what the jurors thought. And that's all it took. You can just throw a ball. And that automatically means that you're not going to kill your wife. I'll mute my line. Thank you.
0: Black people are not known for using their noggin other than for football. Uh, Henry in Chicago, thank you for your patience, sir. All right. Um,
4: You know, interesting with uh, Resnick, uh, how she's such a prominent character, but yet, you know, just like you said, Gus, she's not a witness. Uh, She has no uh, relation to the trial itself, with the exception that, you know, she's one of uh, Nicole Simpson's friends. So, you know, I just find it odd, you know, with her status as a person in this trial, which she wasn't even personally involved in the trial. Um, uh, Ironic of her talking about, you know, her friend, uh, quote unquote friend, uh, Nicole, in regards to the Brentwood hello and, and stuff like that, where Faye herself is, you know, in the same line as Nicole in regards to, you know, what they call gold diggers, her, her, you know, her two husbands were like filthy rich, uh, people, uh, white people who, you know, she was able to, you know, get a settlement from, from one of the, uh, one of her husbands for like about $194,000 something a month in alimony. Uh, I think I read that somewhere. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, and then she was also a drug user as well, uh, which, uh, I was waiting for, uh, I was waiting for uh Tubin to say something in regards to that and he, he did say it but it was kind of like a <laughs> little quick sentence on that. But uh yeah, that's uh very interesting. And Tubin's, you know, issue of Ido, uh Judge Ito and Faye having these interviews and you know, Ito uh uh being interviewed by I think uh the previous email caller uh was referring to Geraldo uh, interviewing uh, Judge Ito and, and Sally Jesse Raphael and, you know, Faye Resdick, uh, you know, being interviewed, I think, by CNN or something like that. But yet he contradicts himself because early in the book he's talking to, you know, he's talking to, he was asking, you know, why Shapiro was mad at him for having, you know, for having this interview with uh, with Larry King while he's, you know, giving up unsubstantiated information on a capital murder case. <laughs> and so I thought that was you know, that was a huge contradiction for him to say something like that. So, you know, this this guy's he's something else. I mean, this guy's very, very deceptive, uh, and and <laughs> yeah, just glad I'm reading his book now. Uh but that's all I have on I my line.
0: Much obliged, Henry N. Chicago Um, yes his his treatment of of Faye Resnick is uh, something to behold uh, in the text Uh, and I guess in the FX interestingly I stopped the audio this week that's where we started so they were going over the jury selection and the defense gold digger all that the transition from uh, Nicole was not a gold digger I knew her she wasn't a gold digger it transitions to Faye Resnick and, oh, we had great times and boob jobs and blah, 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 all the rest of them doing cocaine together all <laughs> that. Anyway, uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, lines
3: should be open. Yes, sir. Uh, retired firefighter? Um, yes, sir. Um, uh. Yeah. Early, early in the second reading, uh, something, something, uh, gained my attention, uh, from a, uh, I guess you'd call it a cultural from a cultural standpoint. Uh, when someone was describing the discipline that, uh, OJ would have with his children in the house, uh, and I'm, 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 I'm saying to myself, uh, I mean, the cultural, that particular aspect of cultural uh, from exhibited by a, quote unquote, black attempted parent was not unusual. Not only was it not unusual, it was constructive (laughs) from the standpoint of not allowing children to rip and run inside of the house, especially after the house was clean, was clean inside the house. And uh, who was making this uh, complaint? Was it the resnick white female that made that complaint?
0: Uh, yes, Faye Resnick.
3: Yes. Y- y- yeah, I- I- I'm not surprised either. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not surprised either. Uh, she only confirms my thoughts on uh, the late Nicole Simpson. Uh, that, uh, you know, that she uh, basically uh, had, uh, I'm pretty sure more than just uh, this uh, resident character, but uh, a flock of fellow uh, white females who uh, subject their own, use their own bodies to uh, be able to uh, gain some sort of uh, material profit from males. Uh, uh, And, you know, I'm not surprised by it at all, uh, that she would make such comments and and whatnot, that sort of thing. Uh, Also, uh, I think it was in the first half of the reading, uh, am I correct in the saying that uh, the quote-unquote non-white Asian judge had a white wife?
0: She's an enforcement officer. Penny York is her name.
3: Hmm. hmm. <laughs> I, I, I mean, all it it, it 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 to me, and I'm trying to figure out on why it 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 just it it just fits for the trial itself, uh, for that to take place. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm I'm trying to solidify on exactly why I think it should it would fit you know, in a trial of this nature, you know, of a black male being accused of murdering uh, two white people. One of them happened to be someone that he was uh, legally uh, committed to and uh, and uh, assisted him in producing two children. Uh, and uh, the person who was uh, uh, duty to uh to uh referee over this particular uh trial uh had a uh, similar type of uh relationship and therefore a mindset <laughs> such as you know that sort of thing. I d I, I don't think I don't even think that was by accident. Uh and uh that's all i to say thank you.
0: Much obliged is- Spouse will figure more prominently in this as we proceed, but that is way down the line, too. Other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary to share, proceed. Ooh, they're shooting outside the fireworks already. Let's see, maybe folks are. All good. Uh, I'll get in a few of my notes and then we should be good. The last few moments of 2020 good riddance. Uh, let's see I'll round it out. We'll get one more prosecution source in Christopher Darden, who has not been mentioned in the text yet. Christopher Darden, uh, comments about the whole jury selection process. He writes in his book in contempt victim of racism. The jury candidates wrote of being the last one served in a restaurant, of being stopped by the LAPD for no reason, sometimes even of being beaten. A couple of jurors said outright that police officers lie on the stand. It was a nightmare jury pool, a stagnant, shallow pool of bitterness and anger. And I couldn't say that I was the least bit surprised. What a metaphor. The system itself had forged this jury in Simi Valley. And in the molten anger of a million indignities and injustices, some collective and historical, some deeply personal, I knew where this jury pool came from. But why did we have to have them on this case? A prosecutor has a picture in his mind of an ideal juror, an upper middle class college educated Republican living in the suburbs because he had to get out of the crime ridden city a law and justice type a person who had no use for criminals or those charged with a crime and not just white people now I found it hard to keep a straight face there but alright despite the media's insistence otherwise there is a healthy black middle class and there are many conservative tough on crime blacks Not here. This was a downtown jury. A CCB jury notorious for screwing up cases with outrageous verdicts for having more sympathy for the gangsters than for the cops. You never know what a downtown jury will do, was the cry of disappointed prosecutors. We heard about cases secondhand. The acquittal of a defendant even after the jury heard his audio taped confession the guy whose conviction was reduced from a capital murder to second degree for shooting a cop during a jewelry store robbery, practically the definition of first degree death penalty case. That was classic downtown L.A., where the rules of prosecution were often turned on their ear. Prosecution rule, the testimony of a police officer will have more credibility with jurors than will the testimony of other people. CCB rule, jurors will assume the cops are lying. But that was the jury we were given, the one we helped select, and as of October faded into November and the trial loomed around the corner, there wasn't time to bemoan the fact that we were going to have to convince jurors who probably didn't like us and already discounted our case. I've heard pundits and others say that the Simpson case was lost as soon as we allowed it to be tried downtown that we should have tried the Simpson case at the Santa Monica courthouse. I strongly disagree. According to policy and practice, such huge cases would always be tried in the downtown courts building because no other courthouse was big enough or even remotely prepared for such a behemoth to talked about that. The case belonged downtown. To move it would have been unethical and manipulative. It is hard to stomach the hypocrisy of those people who criticized Johnny Cochran for playing the race card, yet would have had us move the trial to the suburbs to avoid black jurors. That is just another version of the same card game Cochran played. I understand the frustration about the verdict, yet I feel very sorry for people who are so cynical about our criminal justice system. Yes, I recognize that black jurors were less were likely to see Simpson differently, see our case differently, even see me differently. But these were Americans. These were Angelinos, and they had every right and every duty to serve on this jury. We can't have a system that creates the prejudices and beliefs of those jurors, emotions that run much deeper than just the Simpson jury pool, and then hope they won't show up when we call for a jury of peers. It was our responsibility to try to appeal to this group of people, no matter how suspicious and bitter they were. Bitter. And we failed but I would rather fail than win by perverting and twisting the justice system. As I believe the defense team did. Mm. If the prosecutors had moved the Simpson case out of downtown to avoid black jurors, I would not have worked on it. And that I will stop there. That is in contempt. Uh, Christopher Darden, black male, who has not yet joined the book yet in Jeffrey Toobin, but is giving his account of the whole jury selection process. Uh, I'll just say quickly from chapter 10. Um, they re- it's so disgusting, at least in my view, for Toobin to be presenting these people who are like beyond like, I don't know, she's a little iffy, like Jill Shively is a liar. Faye, you mean doped up, coke snorting Faye Resnick? She would have tipped the scales, we can bring her in and oh yes, our time's giving blowjobs to strangers and snorting coke, yes, let me tell you about that no count, toxic OJ Simpson. Get out of here, Jeffrey Tubin. Like you have got to be joking, <laughs> my God! To even possibly think if she—if she had just not done all these interviews, if she had just not published her book, we could have got her on the stand and got that no count to Get out of here! Uh, let's see. He says there is Pelican brief that will pop up on Wednesday that goofy book for whatever reason will be brought up again when we get Stephenson in a totally different context but related to the OJ Simpson case and I guess it did come out around the time of all this 95 94 Julia Roberts uh, Denzel Washington big stars court case uh, John Grisham court drama so yeah I guess I can see where some but that'll come up again on Wednesday pelican brief Uh, let's see just ill fortune get out of here uh Let's see. He says for Johnny Cochran, the connections between his millionaire client and the problems of race in America and the underclass were so obvious as to not require elaboration. Him being sarcastic uh, here, (laughs) man, at least in my view, if this is the stance that you're going to take, like this is all nonsense. They're just playing the race card. It has nothing to do with this trial here. Is there like a recant or Ooh, I was wrong. Once Mark Furman and all that comes out way later down the trial is there. Oh, man, I thought they were just playing the race card and looks like, wow, this does have some even though OJ Simpson is Brentwood and all that. It does, after all, have something to do with racism. I guess we'll have to pay attention to see how that Goes from there. Uh, I have to pay attention to the way that he talks about Lance Ito. I thought that was a great point earlier about him describing Lance Ito as not being kind of rash, carried away uh, with all the stardom and all of this. Even though it's a common accusation, but him not really being a uh, reasoned, thinking judge in this case. You know, we're boys and girls. He is non-white, so something to keep in mind. I'll stop there. Uh, Seems thought we got everybody. Make sure I didn't miss a hand.
2: I got one thing to add. Um, the Brentwood special. Um, and I don't know about this. Now, OJ, I would assume, being a star athlete, has had his pick of women. Uh, he's going to stay with a white female. He's going around giving specials to people and that's, you know, tolerated. I just don't, you know, I think that's painting him as a weak black man um, lustfully and control. you know, lust of this white woman who can't let her go. Also, I think that uh, if they were giving out Brentwood Specials in um, Brentwood, Los Angeles, the population of black males that would be living there would be um, astronomical. Every black male that could afford to live there would be there to get a special from a white woman, you know, I just don't, I
0: think that was just, uh, you know, attacking his show. I be my mind thinking. Hmm. Could be. I know some of these uh, behaviors were going on after uh, they were divorced, so it wouldn't be his wife or whatever. They're divorced moving on. He's seeing other people. She's seeing other people. Although it seems to be pretty wide in terms of reports of Her promiscuous activity like that seems to be pretty widespread. So, yeah, I wouldn't have a whole lot of reasons to doubt that one. I do. Yeah, that'll be coming up. That even I think is going to come up in the trial. So we'll have to stay tuned. But yes, you can check out Faye Resnick for all of the juicy guy. In fact, I think she has interviews. If you want to check it out, they have interviews that she did with like uh What's my man, Larry King, and some of the other prominent folks, maybe Geraldo too, but I definitely know uh, Larry King. You can go and see the interview that she did and all the nasty things she has to say about OJ Simpson, and maybe the Brentwood hello too. Give her a uh, breakdown on that. Anywho, wrap up 2020, book club number six. Uh, we'll pick up next week for the Dream Team. I guess I'd throw this in as well. If you think this book, in terms of the way Tubin is describing all of these people and Johnny Cochran and the events we've heard thus far if you think this is dangerous or deceptive the FX series is substantially more treacherous in my opinion TV always is it's going to be way uh, less detailed than just the presentation of everything and the acting it's I mean if you don't have a lot of information and you watch that FX series, oh, man, you will be convinced like OJ Simpson killed these people like he helped rig the 2016 election. He was smuggling weapons of mass destruction uh, with Saddam Hussein, like anything bad that happened in the last 25 years or James probably had a hand in it. <laughs> like I think that is pretty much the conclusion you would be left with from the FX series. We will continue uh, if you have it or what have you, and you kind of match up as we go along, you can share that way as we proceed. Anywho, we'll be here tomorrow for so-called new year's uh, neutralizing workplace racism, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I uh, hope everyone is staying safe, maybe staying inside. If doing the book club helped a few folks uh, stay a little bit safe and not be outside for all of the craziness grand uh it has been way dangerous uh all calendar year long no need to be cutting a fool outside in the cold making racket taking a drink uh good riddance to this past year i know but let's do that safely inside uh you don't have to worry about anything i am extra certain there will be all kinds of sobriety checkpoints mark Furman will be out and looking let me find you with a white woman Let me find you with something on your breath. Oh, yeah. Make sure you start this new year. We'll have a fresh face mask for you. Maybe in the jail. All of that to say sobriety would be best. Uh, I don't know if there are too many locations where you can go out and cut a fool for the New Year's. I suspect probably so. It's been so much defiance. I would not recommend that at all. Stay home. Stay safe. Prepare. Hopefully we can have a better 2021, get much closer to universal man, universal woman being sober. Uh, In addition to not consuming anything right now and probably hunkering down and staying in one spot, uh, I would not recommend uh, being out and about uh, just for a billion different reasons. Plus, it's late and everything right now. Uh, If you don't have it, whatever it is that you're trying to get, a lot of places already closed down and everything. If you don't have it by now. You can wait, wait till uh, tomorrow, wait till Monday if it's something that's closed, but no need to be out running around late at night. There will probably be people who are intoxicated, armed and intoxicated out to run about, release some of their stress, bitterness from everything that happened this year. You do not want to run into that at all. Anytime, not just tonight. In fact, anytime between now and Monday, I'd say people gonna probably act a fool all the way through the weekend. So be very mindful of that when you go out. If you have to go out, be alert, check around, no verbal confrontations. If it looks like folks are getting loud and rowdy, vamoose, we're not confronting folks, not getting into any verbal altercations, Psh, getting out as uh? Michelle Obama say they go low. You go high and hitting the high road out of here. If you need to call enforcement officers or whatever, do that as you exit. But no confrontations. We are very risk averse for the time being. Uh, With all of that, uh, if you got to go out, you are sober. You are buckled. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. We're trying to avoid contact with the Mark Furman's Amber Geigers of the known universe. Small things that we can do. Buckled with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga
2: you're so brainwashed
0: i'm a victim your brother problem.
2: you're a
0: victim yeah. i'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been
2: conditioned <laughs>